So yeah, so it's been a long time since we talked to each other, which is uh, weird. Not good, not bad, just weird. I miss you. Yeah, it's it's kind of unusual. Like, to, especially, you know, when we were planning all this, I, we had no idea that there would actually be pretty relevant news <laughs> in the meantime. <laughs> Whoops. Well, it worked out perfectly because if we had recorded at a regular time, we would have just missed it. But now we're just coming in at the right time. And not only has it happened, but we've also had the follow-up on it already. So we'll get to it. And in fact... Casey and I did our homework. We did. It's not time for that yet, but yes, I know you both did very well. <laughs> Thank Thanks, <you>. Dad. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. Can we get a sticker on the wall? <laughs> on, our, on our charts. I want my gold star, damn it. Friend of the show, Steve Trouton Smith, had a or made a fun discovery, what feels like forever ago now. He writes, here's a fun thing that's kind of significant. The UIKit apps in macOS Mojave are the exact same build as in iOS 12. This suggests that Marzipan apps will be updated in lockstep with iOS and are not some weird fork for the desktop on their own delayed schedule, which has huge implications, writes he. So he also has a screenshot where he's doing a little bit of spelunking, trying to figure out what are the build versions of like voice memos and the home app and so on and so forth. And sure enough, they match, which is interesting. So what I'm curious is how if there's a new release for iOS, like how does that make its way onto Mojave? Or I, I guess these are not App Store apps, are they? Because like Shortcuts is an App Store app or will be, but these are caked into the OS. So I'm not exactly sure what the mechanism is for this. Caked? Well, I, I don't know, built into. <laughs> that yeah. sounds delicious. Baked. Sorry, yeah. my bad. No, that sounds kind of gross because, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what I, my... I mean, I read this tweet and I had a different take on it. Like, I don't like the idea of individual applications being tied to OS releases because we all know what happens then. Then you don't get updates for a really long time. You only get updates when the OS gets updates, whereas if the apps are independent, you can update the apps when it's appropriate to do the apps and the OS when it's appropriate to do the OS. I, you know, it's interesting that these are, of course quote-unquote mac apps as in they're meant to run on a mac but they're the os whose build number they're tied with is not the os that they run on which is also weird like i i also don't know i mean it, it, it's i think it's good to know that you know they're not a weird uh, fork and basically when the ios code base gets updated it's not like you have to wait for the the uh, marzipan version to also get updated like there's enough sharing that it's like oh well when they fix if there's some bug and they fix it it doesn't just get fixed on ios and then you have to wait a month for it to get fixed in the mac version presumably it'll be fixed in both places but the distribution mechanism as casey pointed out is the big question so what does it mean that the stocks application the marzipan stocks application is updated is basically the same shares enough of the code base that is updated at the same time as the ios stocks application how do you get that on your Mac? Does it mean macOS updates are now synced with iOS updates? Does it mean you get an update in the Mac App Store? I don't know. These are all good questions. It's trippy. On a completely different note, Yono writes in to say, I'm an American living in Germany, and we just recently got a HomePod. I like it a lot, but while Siri is available in many languages, she is still monolingual. And they go on to explain, my wife is German and likes to listen to German groups. However, we have Siri set up in English. When we pronounce the names of German groups correctly, Siri cannot understand us. We have to pronounce them in a way an English speech speaker with zero knowledge of German might try. So like the three of us. It happens the other way around, too. German Siri mispronounces English songs as, as if they were written in German. I also speak Hebrew. Some Hebrew songs on Apple Music have their titles transliterated, while others are written using the Hebrew alphabet. So English Siri doesn't know how to read Hebrew, and if a song is playing with a Hebrew title and I ask what's playing, she responds, this is, and then there's silence. Bye. More silence. 
So Yano continues. <laughs> it also means I can't ask for these songs by name. I plan on opening some radars. Yeah, this was in response to, you know, we were talking about how, you know, one of Siri's great um, advantages over some of the other voice platforms that's often touted by Apple and its executives and a lot of its fans and defenders is that Siri has really good support for multiple languages and for different locales around the world and everything. Um, but we we got this feedback and similar feedback from lots of people basically saying that Siri's, you know, multiple language support is maybe overstated or that becomes really a problem when you mix languages between what you're speaking and what you're speaking about maybe or or the language of your phone versus the language of other things um, because of issues like this i i I mean as a monolingual person i found this quite helpful when i was driving in canada in, in driving to montreal a few years ago with apple maps and it pronounced the names of the french named streets the way I would pronounce it in my head as someone who knows zero French, which is hilarious. I'm not going to repeat it now because it would be just embarrassing for me. Um, but it did make it easy to read the street signs when I could hear Siri butchering the names the same way I would. <laughs> but I could see how this is kind of a big problem if you actually know multiple languages and you mix and match them with what you're asking Siri for or about. Uh, and, and it apparently has no good support for mixing languages. And the Hebrew thing is just embarrassing. Like, it, yeah, that's bad. if it can't if it can't read it at all, just substituting silence. I, you know, <laughs> that's probably the worst choice. Second mm-hmm. worst choice would be Siri explaining to you what it can't do. It's just not good. Finally, one of my favorite things about ATP, and I mean this genuinely, is that we have an unbelievable breadth of people that listen to this show. And you know, you think of what you would expect to be the kind of person who would listen to the show and you would assume like a developer probably on the apple platforms or something like that but sure enough we have a lot of other people that listen to the show and ralph middleton writes in as an air conditioning expert uh training the air conditioner (laughs) water which is what marco was talking about doing to reduce the noise eliminates the efficiency gains by drilling a hole in the in the drain pan of my window air conditioner yes right (laughs) It, it eliminates the efficiency gains will and it will increase the power usage because the unit has to run longer to cool the room and the system runs at higher pressure and might also shorten the life of the compressor so in other words yeah, it's going to be a little quieter, but don't do this. Finally, Ralph adds, as for John's comments, there's a reason why the HVAC industry is a slang term for these units. We call them, quote, window shakers, quote, which I thought was quite amusing as well. <laughs> Someone also sent us a tweet that they just bought uh, the same air conditioner that Marco has, and it comes with a big yellow warning sticker on the outside of the thing that says, do not drill holes in this air conditioner. <laughs> yeah, they, they apparently know it's like a popular thing that people do. It's the first thing you see when you open the box. You're like, oh, let me open up this box. Aha, why is it telling me not to drill holes? And then like, you know, a day later, you're drilling a hole in your air conditioner. And you go, I see why that sticker was there. I'll take the risk. It worked great. One of... Th- how can I phrase this delicately? There are many, many, many ways I am. I don't know if envious is the word I'm looking for, but I, I wish I was more like the two of you guys. But one of the ways I am deeply glad with respect that I am not like you two is being <laughs> deeply offended by any noise that is within three miles of my it's head. Spoken like someone with central air. Well, yes, that's true. But <laughs> you don't. When's the last time you've dealt with a window unit? Uh, last time I was at my grandparents, which has admittedly been a few years. And did it make a horrible shaking noise? You, I don't think you could sleep in the room. Oh, I have with the I've done it many times. I've done it many no, times. like with with a really loud, you know, body cladding, bass thumping, car rattling, air conditioner running on and off all night okay. long. Let me, let me give you this one, and let's assume that's true, even though I don't think it is. 
how many fans are allowed in your entertainment center right now, John Syracuse? I've got more fans in my entertainment center than you do, and you know that. <laughs> my television has fans. My PlayStation has fans. My TiVo has fans. All my but how consoles. many of those? Okay, let me. Just, I, the TiVo is always thread. on, and the television, of course, is always on. And the number of fans that my TiVo combined with my television is probably more than the total in your entertainment center. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull on this thread because I'm a fool <laughs> until I can get where I want to get. How many of those fans bother you though? Uh, I don't think any of them really. Oh, I, that's lies, John. Know, the, the, the TV lies. ones maybe a little bit when it's hot, but you know, oh, you lie. All I'm saying is that both of you are deep, are very deeply offended about these things, and there are many ways in which I wish I was more like the two of you, and I am glad that this is not one of those ways. Oh man! All right, let's move on. We are sponsored this week by Eero. Finally, Wi-Fi that works. We all know by now that no matter how many antennas you put on the top of a router, no matter what kind of range it advertises, one Wi-Fi router just doesn't cover most people's houses or apartments all the way. Every room, full speed, no dead zones. It's pretty much impossible because you have things like walls and building materials and just shapes of rooms that just make it hard for radio signals to cover everywhere when they're just being broadcast from one point. What you need is a distributed Wi-Fi system that broadcasts Wi-Fi from multiple base stations all simultaneously, all together, blanketing your home in Wi-Fi. Now, businesses and schools figured this out a long time ago, and they have these enterprise-grade systems that are really expensive and really hard to set up and administer. You basically need to be a network administrator to know how to use them. Eero came out with this wonderful system that brings you that enterprise-grade performance and scalability and coverage of your home, but with incredible ease of use and these nice, beautiful, little, unobtrusive units. So here's how this works. The Eero comes in these multiple units. They have a regular base station, and this is all top-of-the-line radios, three 5 gigahertz radios, tri-band, it's super fast, and the base station plugs into your network connection just like any other router would. Then they give you the Eero beacons. The beacons are these very small, very compact units that can just plug in flush against an outlet. They even include a little nightlight feature you can use if you want to because they're kind of shaped like like nightlights. The beacons help rebroadcast the signal. They communicate with a with a back-end mesh network back to the base station, and they blanket your entire home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi with really great hardware, amazing performance, and just honestly, very good looks also. You don't have to worry about these things looking crazy in your house or looking like aliens or anything like that. They're nice, unobtrusive little white units. They're beautiful and they work really well. And the app is super easy to use and set up. This is the the easiest router setup I've ever seen. Even among single router setups, it is by far the nicest setup I've ever seen. So check it out today at eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com. And if you want overnight shipping for free, pick overnight shipping, then enter promo code ATP to the U.S. or Canada. That'll make it free. Thank you so much to Eero for sponsoring our show once again. There has been some news in the last, uh, what was it, two days, three days? Doesn't really matter. Uh, Apple has released some new MacBook Pros, asterisk. Dagger, double dagger, triple no, dagger. No asterisk. Why do you think your asterisk count? I mean, look, these. This is a legitimate update. Now th- there are new um, there are new MacBook Pros, but that's it. There's no new MacBook Escape. There's no there's no new MacBook One slash MacBook Adorable. By the way, the MacBook Escape is called MacBook Pro. So what they what they really did is they updated only the models with touch bars. Yeah. See, there's there's your well, asterisk. We're going by our naming scheme here, though. Yes. Apparently, they are too. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so there's new MacBook Pros. Um, on the surface, this doesn't seem like too much. So the really, really obvious things on the surface anyway 
are that for the 15 inch, you can get up to six cores and I believe four cores was the max before. Yes. Um, you can get up to 32 gigs RAM, 16 gigs was the max before. You can get up to a four terabyte SSD, which is very impressive and extraordinarily expensive. It's something like $3,200 just for the SSD in American dollars. Um, and you can also get um, a Radeon Pro discrete graphics with up to four gigs of video memory. Actually, I guess that's in every configuration. That's all the 15 inch, 13 inch gets up to a two terabyte SSD and gets Intel Iris Plus integrated graphics uh, with 128 megs of ED RAM. And four core. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, basically, they both got two more cores. <laughs> which is nice you get a core and you get yeah, a core. like you know for the 13 inch that doubles the core count for the 15 inch you get 50 percent more like that's that and that's you know it isn't like you know apple invented this you know this is intel's new coffee lake generation of processors it's a really good generation as intel the company is completely falling apart they're getting desperate and um, trying to uh, eke out more new products out of their existing uh, architecture and uh, and process node size uh, because they can't get their new one online. So they uh, got desperate enough to start increasing the core counts on the high-bend uh, parts for uh, the old, uh, what are they on, 14 nanometers still for this line? So we get Coffee Lake, and, uh, you know, it's Intel's like, you know, tick, tock, 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 tock scheme, and it's wonderful. <laughs> Oh, well done. So that's the that's the obvious. Oh, and uh, True Tone Display, which is super cool. Um, and True Tone Touch Bar, which is cool, even though no one's asking for it, but it's cool. <laughs> so that's the obvious stuff, What's or, or the more visible stuff. But there's actually a lot more than this under the hood. They are all also getting the T2 chip for secure boot and on-the-fly encrypted storage. And also, hey, uh, dingus. I almost said the actual trigger word, which was, would have been not good. So this T2 thing is actually a pretty big deal. That came out of the iMac Pro, and this is the first mobile device that's using it. And at first glance, like, yeah, okay, whatever. But that's actually really, really important because that dramatically increases the security of these of these devices. And that's that had to have been a pretty big deal trying to get devices that are not constantly plugged in and not always on to basically run iOS in order to boot macOS. So I think there's a lot more here than meets the eye. But nevertheless, this is not necessarily the uh, silver bullet we wanted. Or is it because they tell us, Marco Arment, there is a new keyboard and you have tried it and, and I have as well. Marco, tell me your thoughts. So the way Apple presented this keyboard update is... It is an improved third-generation butterfly keyboard for quieter typing. <laughs> and they keep saying that the only purpose of this was to make it quieter. Um, they even told Dieter Bone at The Verge, uh, the third-generation keyboard was not designed to solve the uh, failure issues that have plagued the previous ones. Um, it was designed only to be quieter, according to Apple's statements. And there are probably good reasons to these statements because there are lawsuits against Apple right now against those keyboards, uh, the previous, every previous butterfly keyboard uh, before this. What's interesting is that iFixit started tearing down one of these, uh, I believe last night, and found that the key switches now have basically like a silicone protecting like gasket over the over the key switch, basically, so that it's almost like a whole silicone like umbrella over it that um, I, I I know chat room. I'm trying not to call it a condom. It, that's every that's what everyone is saying. I know it's basically a key condom, but it would be a, a lousy key condom and a lousy umbrella for that matter because 
<laughs> of course, yeah. Go ahead. A, there's a hole right in the middle of it, but B, more importantly. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right. More, more stop. importantly, stop. if you think about it, it can't entirely enclose the key mechanism. Because if it entirely enclosed the key mechanism, how would the keycap attach? Maybe with magnets, but that's right. not what they do. So no, no magnetic keycap. So that would be a clever idea, Apple. Think about that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> bad, probably bad inertia on the keycaps. Um, there are holes at all four corners for the little nubbin thingies that the keycaps click into. Yeah. So anyway, so they they have fitted this like silicone membrane, um, a pretty a pretty substantial change under the keycaps. And Apple is insisting this was for quiet typing, and it is quieter. And and they they seem to be insisting that, that was the, the the phrasing Apple is giving everybody sounds like there was no failure problem. What do you mean? That is a very 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 small percentage of people that there is no failure problem. The problem that most people had with it was that it was too loud, which it was. I don't think that was the biggest problem with it. I also bet that wasn't even the biggest initial complaint about it, but it was loud. It was also made quieter in the 2017 revision. They didn't talk about it then. Anyway, regardless of what Apple says, which might be being constrained for legal reasons for the lawsuits about their keyboard failures, it certainly seems like this was designed not for quietness as the goal, um, but as iFixit put it, quietness as a side effect of the actual goal, which was making these keys resist the the ingress of dust and crumbs and stuff, uh, which renders them inoperable pretty easily. Um, and that, that seems to be one of the bigger problems that caused the failure problem, if not the biggest problem that caused the failure. So anyway, it sure seems like, regardless of what Apple is saying, which seems like it's kind of bs the actual story here is that they re-engineered this keyboard to make it fail less. Now, this is the kind of thing that we can't know really yet. Like, time will tell. Um, but it is basically, like, as I, as I fixed it, pointed out, they basically did exactly what a patent that they filed, and I believe got granted, uh, says it was for, like, in, I think, last spring. They filed for this patent that basically, you know, outlines exactly what they did and why, which is to prevent stuff from getting under the keycaps, uh, not to make them quieter. <laughs> so uh, it certainly seems like this is, this is the goal. This is what they did, and only time will tell if it actually makes them meaningfully more reliable. So, so anyway, so the homework we did before I get to the homework we did was that Casey and I both independently went to Apple stores today because I believe today was the first day that they had them on display, played with the new MacBook Pros, typed in the keyboards, tried them out, and, and got some impressions. Casey, as, as the only one of us who uses a butterfly keyboard on a regular basis, uh, what did you think of this? So my initial impression was, and really actually it was my entire impression, but it was immediately obvious, was number one, it is much quieter. Number two, it feels, I'm going to use the word softer, but I'm not sure softer is really the best word for it. I think the the only way I can think of to describe it is the prior butterfly version. So the one that I have on my MacBook Adorable that I bought almost exactly a year ago. One of the things I loved about, or I do love about it, is that it it feels very precise. It's like the difference between getting in a luxury car and twisting the temperature dial. And you know how it has those really nice, strong clicks? It's clear that somebody engineered that dial so that it's really nice. Or like a really, really, really nice gear shift, which is actually relevant this week because I have another press car, um, which maybe we can talk about that later, maybe not. But anyways, like a really good shifter is super it just feels precise and mechanical and just feels like strong and almost angry a lot of the time and 
and that's that I really, really love about it. And and I love that about the the MacBook Adorable that's that's actually sitting next to me right now. The new ones, they still felt very mechanical, but just ever so slightly softer. I almost said mushier, but that implies an, a negativity that I don't mean. It just felt like it had been dampened ever so slightly. And that was the first thing I noticed. And the second thing I noticed is it is unequivocally quieter. And what I ended up doing was, you know, our Apple store is not tremendous here in Richmond. And so I, at one point, I felt like I was one of those, you know, 80s style, you know, uh, synthesizers play, synthesizer players, because I was like rotating 180 degrees between one table that had the brand new keyboard and another table that had the, the basically my MacBook keyboard. And <laughs> you know, it was, I, I didn't get to the point that I was like, you know, spread armed typing on both at the same time, which was like the synthesizer the size or power move in the 1980s. But anyways, um, John is rolling his eyes so hard at me right now. But anyway, uh, it definitely felt different. I would not say it was, I, I did not prefer the new feel, but I wasn't, you know, turned off by it, if that makes sense. I would prefer the feel of my existing keyboard because it was so just precise. It's, it is so precise. However, if the choice I have to make is my occasionally in need of compressed air keyboard, that feels delightfully precise or this thing that feels ever so slightly softer, but doesn't need compressed air every month. Obviously I'm choosing the new keyboard every day. That was my two cents. Now you come from what I would describe as a fairly mushy keyboard, which is funny because I didn't think of the, of the 2015 era keyboards as mushy until I got used to both the magic keyboard and then even more so this new butterfly switch keyboard. So this, I would assume, still felt to you probably not that different than the keyboards from years past. So what did you think? You know, the, the original MacBook One keyboard in 2015, the very first butterfly keyboard that we used, all of these keyboards have had the exact same amount of travel. And some of the reviews when, when the 2016s came out said that the 2016s had improved the keyboard by increasing the travel. And that's not what they did. And Apple was very careful when they worded uh, how they described the 2016 keyboards. What it did was basically improve the way the key kicks back. It improves the amount of feedback that you feel. So the original butterfly keyboard on the, map, on the 2015 MacBook 1, not only was it low travel, but it also had almost no kickback on the keys. And so it was incredibly unpleasant on a number of fronts to type on. They had this keyboard and they're like, you know, we've had a lot of negative feedback about this keyboard because it's low travel. It feels like crap. <laughs> a lot of people hate it. So when presented with the option of putting in their new MacBook Pros across the entire lineup, Apple chose to put it in any way, even though a bunch of people hated it, even though it was very controversial. And to improve the lack of feedback, rather than increasing the travel, they basically just made it kick back harder. And that's one of the big things why it also... Uh, was so much louder. Like the original MacBook One keyboard was not as loud as the as the MacBook Pros were uh, in 2016 and 17. Um, the MacBook Pro mechanism, like the way it would like, kick you back, it made that horrible popping noise, and that's part of the reason why they were so loud. The 2017 models did change the keyboard, as I mentioned earlier. What was different about it was they added some like little rubber gaskets somewhere, basically, and it made it both a little bit quieter and it also softened that kickback a little bit. It made it such that like it would still kick back more than the original MacBook One, you know, mushy flat keyboard, uh, but it would it wasn't as harsh. It felt a little bit more refined, a little bit nicer. Still had horrible low travel, but it was just like a little bit nicer feeling and a little bit nicer sounding. And the 2018 revision is just a continuation of that same path, basically. So when you compare the 2017 
2016 and you feel like, oh, this is a little bit softer and more damped. 2018 is just a little bit more softer and more damped compared to the 2017 revision. It's the exact same path now done with, I think, a little bit more of a, you know, a, a stronger change with this big new rubber membrane under it and hopefully with the side effect of, of keeping crap out of the key. But the way it feels and sounds, I would just say, is a, is a continuation of that same progression, which is it's basically Apple's, Apple trying to make the best of a keyboard that has a lot of problems. Why they keep including it in the laptops, uh, you know, I think right now is just a matter of inertia and or stubbornness. And we'll see whenever the, whenever these laptops get like the next actual like external case redesign we'll see if they stick with it or if they actually meaningfully change this keyboard then uh but right now the story appears to be apple sticking to their guns and for all of the many many problems this keyboard brings from reliability to feel to noise there's deploying band-aid upon band-aid upon band-aid so this is the latest band-aid on on this keyboard's many problems I hope it works. I hope, you know, in the sense that, you know, it doesn't make the keyboard feel any better. It doesn't make it feel like it has any more travel. It doesn't make the keys any nicer to type on. I typed on it and had the exact same opinion I've had of the previous ones, which is I can get used to this. In fact, for a while I did get used to it, but I don't like it and I think it's bad. Okay, so the new keyboard, if whatever you thought of the previous ones, you will think the exact same thing of this new one. It, It doesn't feel meaningfully different. It just feels a little softer. And it's quieter, I think. I, my store was a little bit loud, so it was hard to judge noise. I was able to do side-by-side typing, though, because there was a MacBook Escape right next to the, one of the new ones, so I could, I could judge, because that one hasn't been updated yet. You do feel the difference. It is noticeable, but it's not massive. If you didn't like the keyboard before, you still won't like it. Hopefully, though, this will make it not as failure-prone. That's, that's what, you know, the question on everyone's mind, which I was all over Twitter about, much to many people's chagrin, is like, you know, Apple didn't say the one thing we wanted them to say, which is this keyboard's more reliable. They didn't say that, again, probably for legal reasons. But regardless, we haven't gotten that info from them. And ultimately, we won't know if what what appears to be a fix for reliability, we won't know if it actually works for like months. You know, we basically have to just see, does this fix the problem or not? Do people seem to be not having this problem? Because the previous ones would break pretty fast. A lot of people would have them fail within the first few weeks or months. So we should know over the next few months whether this is making a meaningful difference or not. Also, if anyone's curious, we I've heard a number of reports from people saying that they sent in their MacBook Pro for repair recently and got this new keyboard put into it. We'll see if that ends up being true, but you know, this might if you send yours in for keyboard service under the under the repair program, it might be getting this new keyboard, which should be pretty good if that's the case. How do they know they got the new keyboard? Uh the the genius told them, apparently. But anyway. How's it how's the genius know? I don't know. I, just, I feel like I it's it's kind of a bad situation, like the refrigerator light in the refrigerator. Like the only way to actually know whether you got the new keyboard is to pull your keycap off, but then you probably just broke your keyboard again. Yeah. So anyway, so Keyboard, I I do want to talk about the rest of the update, but just to to complete the keyboard subject, I am tentatively optimistic. I still think this keyboard is overall a bad design because it needs so many band-aids just to function as well as any other keyboard ever has with a much simpler and cheaper and more reliable and and more universally agreeable design. Um, So I I still think this this keyboard is just band-aid upon band-aid upon band-aid. That's simply a bad engineering. It's it's you know it's throwing good engineering after bad. I guess it's like 
this keyboard should not be used the way it's being used. Like it, it should be more dramatically redesigned than what has happened. And I hope that happens when the next physical redesign of these laptops happens. Until then, this probably will fix it to be good enough for people to use it without it breaking, I hope. A good design would have the keyboard not fail so easily when stuff gets into it. This one is just trying over and over and over again to make sure stuff doesn't get in because when stuff gets in, it's catastrophic. You know, give them credit for hopefully fixing this, but this seems like a temporary fix. The real fix is to design a keyboard that isn't so fragile in the first place. Uh, Just a quick addendum to that. I I by and large agree with everything you said, but I, I just wanted to say for those of you who maybe don't upgrade your laptops, I don't know, every other month, Marco, uh, there's, if you, if you haven't tried these, these butterfly keyboards, I did not like the one on my MacBook adorable for the first week or two that I had it. And then I really came around to it. And now it's actually one of my favorite keyboards ever. I still would like a hint more travel, but I've gotten used to that. And, and like I said earlier, I really, really love it. So if you go to the store and play with it for a few minutes, be it the the louder ones from you know circa 2017 or the brand new one that's you know three days old or whatever you may not care for it in the store but you may come around to it over time as i have but certainly i agree with you marco that this probably needs to be rethought on a more general basis and if you really didn't care if you really and truly didn't care for the ones over the last couple of years you're probably not going to like this one either. It is a bit softer, but it's otherwise mostly the same. It is a bit softer, and I thought a lot quieter, but otherwise it's mostly the same stuff. So, John, any thoughts on any of this before we move on to any other key, uh, new MacBook-related things? So now that we're like a few years into this uh, this revision of the laptop line and the, the, the new case designs, the new keyboards, and we can kind of look back at it, uh, it's uh, kind of a uh, a bit of a keyboard tragedy in that the keyboard never was never bad enough for them to do an all hands on deck. We have an emergency. We need to redesign this. So what it looks like instead is that they had a plan, like we're going to redesign our laptops and there's going to be like a three or four year plan. And here are the ones we're going to release in that plan. Right. And as we'll get to it in a bit, I think the guts of this one are actually more substantially revised than you would imagine, given the, the case things there, but they had, they had a whole line that they were going to do. Here's, here's what the case is going to look like. Here's the, the size here's how much battery we can probably fit in we have a little wiggle room here's the ports we're going to have here's you know like and then we're going to do a series they do this all the time it's like car generations you have a certain generation of a car car and there's a new model year every year but the generational turnover only happens every you know three or five years or whatever and this keyboard was a problem from the very first model and they tried to do a lot of things to address it, but it was never a big enough problem for them to say, oh, we have to scrap our plans. Like, we can't go with the year two, year three, year four plan that we wanted to because it just turns out the keyboard is catastrophically bad in terms of reliability or customers hate it or whatever. So we have to, and we, we can't fit another keyboard in the same space, so we have to revise. This keyboard never got to that point. Uh, in general, some people didn't like it, but some people did like it. It was unreliable, but not unreliable enough. So as Marco detailed, every single new model year, so to speak, every single new computer that came out with this keyboard in it, they'd make a tweak. Let's try this. Let's try that. People, you know, it's too squishy and doesn't have ass. Let's make, it, let's make it bounce back. Oh, now it's too noisy. Let's make it quieter. Uh, how, now we have to address the reliability finally, right? And that is, uh, it's a shame because that is basically a, 
you know, a component of your computer shouldn't require this many tiny changes just to reach an acceptable level. It's not as if every year they're every year we're just making it better. Like imagine the screen and it had an anti-glare coating and every year the anti-glare coating got like a little bit better, right? That's not what they're doing here. They're always trying to address problems and didn't really get around to addressing the reliability problem until many, many years into it. Uh, and I think now is the time that I should point out that one of the other uh, wonderful things about the patent system is you can patent things. It doesn't mean that they work for their stated purpose, right? So you can patent like a perpetual motion machine. You could patent wings that you can strap on your arms that let you to fly. You can patent all sorts of stuff, right? So the patent says this little membrane for preventing crap from getting under the keys to make it better. As Marco pointed out, patent means nothing. You don't, it, like, it might work for that purpose. It might not. And as I said earlier, this little membrane for practical reasons, has holes in it. Holes where if a piece of dust or cracker or whatever got under there, it would get under the butterfly mechanism and jam it. It's better than having completely open, having four little holes at the corner, certainly, but the holes are still there. And the holes are still there because this keyboard was never designed to have some kind of wrapper on top of it to stop crumbs from getting in. Because that's just not how it was made. If it was made that way, it would have had it from day one and it would have, you know, like... These are all like almost literal band-aids, little pieces of plastic. Like what can we do to the existing keyboard that has been a a minor, not big, but minor thorn in our side for many, many years. What else can we do to it? It's like, it's it's like they do this with model years of cars. Like, well, we can't, we can't redesign the whole engine, but what if we just put an extra piece of duct tape over here and make this wire thicker? Like we have a fundamental problem. But we can't, it's not big enough for us to invest in a fundamental fix. We'll just wait for the next generation. We'll address it then. In the meantime, what can we do? Or, or like Apollo 13. We've got these parts. We've got this thing. There's nothing else we can, all we can really, can we wrap something around it? Yeah, but then how will the keycap attach? Why don't we just leave holes in the corners? Good, done and done. Like, it's it's better enough that this is all they can do. And it's not an elegant solution. It is a kind of cruddy, you know slapdash solution it's better than no solution at all but it's a shame you know it's one of those problems and i'm sure people who work at big companies have experienced this that it just never got big enough for the big fix which is good that it never got big enough you know hey it's only been a minor problem but bad in that we're all forced to wait and suffer through this long slog with this design and and the ports and everything are similar i'm sure um uh, it's worth noting that the repair extension program that apple rolled out for all touch bar Macintoshes does not include Macintoshes. Sorry, MacBook Pros. I know it's too, I used to a long <laughs> word. Um, does not include these new models. So the repair extension, as of as of the recording of the show, if you go to the repair extension thing on Apple's website and you look at the eligible models, it does not include the 2018 models, right? So this could be Apple's way of saying, we well, don't need to include the 2018s because they're fine in terms of reliability. Or it could be Apple's way of saying, why would we proactively put the 2018 models on there? Let's wait a year, because no one has one of these things that's older than a year old. Wait a year for the warranty to expire. And if we still have problems, maybe we'll have the 2018s. That would be a sign that they probably made the wrong choice. If we come to 2019 and suddenly the 2018 models appear at the bottom of this uh, repair extension program, that shows they just, just could never get this keyboard to work reliably. Like that every single one of these keyboards that they ever sold, despite no matter what they did to it, still had enough of a repair issue that they felt like they needed to have a repair extension program. And that would be bad. Um, 
So, you know, here we are waiting for, I suppose, like, I was going to say the next great keyboard, but how the next good keyboard from Apple? And I mean that in terms of reliability <laughs> only, because like I said, lots of, you know, Casey really likes his keyboard. I've grown to mostly like it, all the key layout, which is distinct from the mechanism, uh, still really annoys me. Mm-hmm. But it's clear that they just, that this this keyboard, it's not, it's not a loser. It's not really a winner either. It's just kind of, it kind of messed up this whole generation of computer and, and provided a just one more thing to be annoyed about. I mean, the ports and the other issues and battery life and the thinness and everything are, are one thing, but it's just not a not a big deal, but just big enough of a deal to just be sitting here for, you know, it's, it's great for ATP. Three years worth of shows, we get to talk about the same stupid <laughs> keyboard. But, but yeah, I don't know what the phrase for it is, but, but I definitely have experienced things like this at work where if you were like an employee of this company, you almost wish that it had been a bigger problem because if it had been a bigger problem, they would have fixed it thoroughly. But it's not a big problem. It's a tiny problem. And some people really like the keyboard. And so here's where we are. We were sponsored this week by Mac Weldon. Better than whatever you're wearing right now. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter code ATP at checkout. Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. It'll be by far the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. And my favorite Mac Weldon stuff, personally, is the silver line. This is a line of silver underwear and shirts, and even socks, I believe, that are naturally antimicrobial because they include silver fibers in their fabric blend. And what this means in practice is they don't stink. So, like, I love these in the summertime. I only wear, I'm right now, I'm wearing, I think, three things. I think I'm wearing the shirt, underwear, yep, and, uh, and socks, all from Mac Weldon. Because these wonderful silver products you don't stink in the summertime, no matter how hot it is, no matter how much you sweat. I, I find I do not stink at all with these, which I cannot say about regular shirts from other brands. And all their stuff is great, too. If you don't need the silver, they have other fabrics as well. They have wonderful premium cotton and lots of their products. They have great workout gear. When I work out, I'm wearing 100% of their stuff. I have, I have workout shorts, socks, everything. Like it's, it's wonderful. And they have a whole range of wonderful fall items as well, winter items. I love their waffle shirts. They're kind of like, it's like the waffle knit sweatshirt. Those are wonderful as well. They now have a line of premium polos mac weldon stuff quite simply i just love it it's amazing it is my only summer shirt producer and i even wear i I wear a lot of their stuff year-round too it's just so good the underwear is fantastic mac weldon wants you to be comfortable not only in your clothes but also comfortable buying from them so here's the thing go order from them order a pair of their silver underwear or whatever else catches your fancy on their site if you don't like your first pair of underwear you can keep it and they'll give you a refund they don't want it back because, you know, no questions asked. <laughs> they don't care why you didn't like the underwear. You can keep your first pair for free if you don't like it. That's how confident they are that you like it. And I love it myself. As I said, I wear these all the time. Shirts, socks, underwear, undershirts, sweatpants, hoodies. All their stuff is top quality. I absolutely love Mac Weldon stuff. So check it out today. MacWeldon.com with code ATP for 20% off your first order. That's MacWeldon.com, code ATP. Thank you so much to Mac Weldon for keeping me cool and stink-free all summer long and for sponsoring the show. All right, so I think that's enough about the keyboards, but one of you, and I don't really care who it is, convinced me, and I actually think this is true, but convinced me that this is not a minor update, and this is actually, to some degree, the real deal. So my, this is not really true in terms of 
what the technology inside this is. But when I when I squint and look at this, it's kind of like the previous models were the first try at putting like a little ARM processor to control a touch bar and do all this stuff like inside a Mac. And we te- we talked a lot about that when the touch bars came out. This kind of uh, you know introducing another c- CPU from the world of iOS, like a little watch OS thing and running that screen. And we've talked a lot about the touch bar and everything, right? When I look at this model, it looks like let's take an iMac Pro and shrink it down into a laptop. That's not what it is. It's not a Xeon in there. It's not actually an iMac Pro, but a lot of the attributes and sort of like the the overall system design of this thing, down right down to the T2 chip and what it's being used for and the performance that they're getting from it with the on-the-fly encryption and everything. It's like the the iMac Pro represented the newest thinking about how to make a Mac. And the new MacBook Pro, the top-end new MacBook Pro, is taking that thinking that you, that is revealed in the iMac and saying, we're going to do that to our laptops as well. Internally, externally, they're the same. There's no new ports. There's no anything like that. But let's take that thinking. Let's put a very powerful ARM processor in there, and let's use it to do things to make the Mac both faster and more capable. It's not just running that little tiny screen. It's encrypting all your hard disk data on the fly. It's listening for you to say, hey, dingus, right? And it's running the touch bar. And I think I read something somewhere that it might actually be used in, like, video encoding or something who knows what it's doing it's basically an a10 class processor it's no slouch in there right and so i think that is much more significant than you know going from uh, insert something lake to insert something else lake right it's not oh there's new cpus and maybe the <laughs> gpu got better right that's a speed bump great we love speed bumps you know oh and then you get a bigger ssd this is a fundamentally more complicated and different design than the old laptop the T1 is not as integrated into the system as the T2 is. The T2 is much more important to this max operation than the T1 ever was. So I think this is actually a fairly significant internal revision. Uh, so much so that if this, you know, if if they had waited until like the, you know, the new case design and everything to incorporate the T2, I think that would have been appropriate as well. So now it's kind of like an iPhone 4S uh, situation where we were getting significantly revised and much more capable and powerful internals including a larger battery to support all this stuff in the same old case and a keyboard with condoms on it <laughs> <laughs> oh my word i i agree with you 100 percent. i think that there's a lot more to integrating the t2 with mac os than any of us including me would have thought at first glance and the more i think about it the more i think this is a really impressive effort but but yeah, I mean, when I first saw this press release and all the reviews thereof of these new machines, I was like, really? That's it? But I think I think there's more here than meets the eye. What do you, Marco, what are your thoughts? So I mentioned earlier the to me one of the one of the most significant changes of this computer is, of this this revision of these computers is the core count increase. You know, this is the kind of thing that does not happen often where you can get a a, a larger number of processor cores without increasing the thermal design, like the, the maximum wattage of the chip, which therefore usually brings like a change in, in computer size. Like, you know, it, you can go from before this, you, you know, you could go from two cores to four cores, but you had to get a 15 inch to do it. You know, like you, you had to like go up a size in computer to get those additional cores. And th- this matters a lot because modern CPU architectures, like you don't gain that much performance per core per revision of these processors like you know every year they might get at most usually 10 percent faster per core than the one before it so 
adding number of cores makes is is like one of the only ways you can get meaningful performance increases uh you know between between computer upgrades and usually you're just kind of locked into whatever the number of cores is for the size of computer that you either want or can afford and so you know i, I did a little bit of research 13 inch macbooks slash macbook pros have been two core since the intel transition which was 2006. Wow. <laughs> you have not been able like that was the, the last time the 13 inch line got another, got more cores was 2006. The last time the 15 inch line got more cores was 2011. This is not the kind of thing that happens often. So the fact that you can now get four cores in the 13 inch size which basically puts it you, you can now look the Geekbench got all the scores up today for all these new laptops you can see. Um, basically it's like you're getting the next size up in CPU performance for free. Now, not other areas. GPUs are still very different, but if you, if CPU performance is what was limiting you, which for a lot of developers, that's the case. Like a lot of developers, you know, if, especially if you're writing Swift or if you're just doing large Xcode compilations, you are doing a lot of parallel work on those processors and processor performance is, is a pretty you know important thing then you know for Xcode people and stuff. And so basically what this gives you is you can either take a roughly 50% performance gain in your 15-inch line, or if a 15-inch was previously suitable enough for you in, in CPU performance, you can now optionally go down to the 13-inch size if you want to. So that's pretty awesome. That That's a huge deal that does not come very often. From a, from a pure, like, you know, performance, you know, genre or performance category uh, perspective, this is pretty awesome. Now, the 13-inch still doesn't have a discrete GPU, which to some people is a pretty big problem to me that's actually a feature because it makes it simpler and much better on the battery um, but that's a big deal in a different way also one of the problems that people have had with these laptops since 2016 since, since the, the introduction of the touch bar generation is that the 15 inch could not be had with 32 gigs of ram it maxed out and only came in in 16 gig configurations this was a huge complaint from a lot of pros but that it was, you know, Apple's defense of it was basically like, look, we can't give you 32 gigs of RAM yet because Intel's chipsets don't yet support low power 32 gig configurations using low power DDR or whatever, whatever. I originally it was DDR3, now it's DDR4. Low power DDR4 I don't think exists yet, or at least is not available in mobile chipsets. And so basically, Apple couldn't deliver 32 gig configurations without using higher-powered RAM, which would have a pretty bad impact on battery life, apparently. So what they appear to have done, which I'm hoping to get more details on uh, as soon as these things are are more thoroughly taken apart and analyzed, but what they appear to have done is only on the 15-inch actually have included probably an external memory controller on the board and are using DDR4 RAM, not low power, but just like standard DDR4 RAM. So there's, you know, presumably there's a performance gain there from going from ddr3 to ddr4 but also this allows them to offer 32 gig configurations but i think they're actually doing ddr4 even if you don't order 32 gigs even if you stick with 16 and they've even they've even made the battery a little bit bigger to compensate for the additional power draw the battery is something like about 10 percent bigger um 7.7 watt hours they added yeah so they made the battery a little bit bigger and apple is uh leaving the battery life estimate the same even though it's totally meaningless, um, so basically they're they're they 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 think they have like evened it out. By the way, they also increased the battery by about ten percent on the thirteen inch 
um, for no apparent reason, except maybe, I wonder maybe the CPUs use more when they're being maxed out because they're a little bit more, you know, all these additional cores. I don't know. Anyway, um, I, I hope the 13-inch has better battery life. We don't have good battery tests yet, but I really hope it has a good battery life because the previous one with Touch Bar really did not. Uh, anyway, so they've they've done this pretty succ- pretty significant engineering to add a 32-gig configuration option to the 15-inch. And that's great because that really was holding people back. It didn't affect me personally because the kind of work I do fits fine in 16 on a laptop. But a lot of people, like if you're running a bunch of VMs or doing like, you know, large data analysis or things like that, like you really needed that. And so it's nice to have that. So and also, you know, they increased the max SSD from two terabytes to four terabytes. I don't know yet whether they're using dual modules in there like they are with the iMac Pro. That's part of the reason the iMac Pro SSDs are so fast. They I, All iMac Pro configurations use dual modules in RAID 0, basically. Um, I, that, I think they do, because one of the other stories that came out today is that someone benchmarking the 13-inch, not the 15-inch, the 13-inch against other 13-inch laptops, and it's this is like a, a laptop review site, so they're benchmarking against the HP Spectre and Dell XPS and a bunch of Asus and Microsoft Surface Books, right? And so, like the everybody except for the iMac the average of megabytes per second in like a file copy test is like 200 to 400 is the range and the the apple the new 13 inch macbook pro is 2500 megabytes per second <laughs> well the, this is a Goodness. little bit suspect though because it was a file copy test and on apfs that's optimized away so no, it's not i don't that i've saw, i've seen enough from this to make me think that it's not an apfs uh file clone thing i'm willing to be proven wrong but my guess because of the t2 and because of the dual module thing that you mentioned is that they are actually because the imac pro gets numbers like that now like you can right and i'm assuming it's it's using the t2 unless it's a special t2 that's wimpier i'm sharing it's the same one and it does the io and i'm assuming they're using the dual modules uh certainly they would have to be to get the four terabyte one makes me think that this is actually just a really really fast ssd in, in even the 13-inch model. And that, that's another example of what, what makes these Pro machines. How are they different than the MacBook? Well, the MacBook doesn't have a T2 and doesn't have these dual modules, doesn't get this copy speed. If this is an APFS clone thing, I'm going to be sad. But for now, I'm totally willing to believe that it really is a very, very fast SSD. And that definitely feels like it is earning the Pro moniker in MacBook Pro, especially when you can get it on the 13-inch model and it's not reserved for the 15. Exactly. So anyway, so when you look at this update... You know, from a performance standpoint, it is significant. It is adding more CPU cores, which hardly ever happens, increasing the the top end specs, even though if you max it out, you, you get like a $7,000 laptop, but it, it is increasing how high you can go on the SSD and the RAM by doubling those. And, you know, the T2 is a great processor, you know, right from the iMac Pro. It is an awesome disk controller, especially like, you know, that's what's giving these these kind of SSD performance gains. Uh, in addition to just having high grade flash, like Apple making its own controller has paid off pretty well. It's, the TC was pretty and, awesome. And you get the secure boot stuff. Exactly. And the, the, uh, the on the fly encryption, the, the quote unquote free on the fly encryption, all of the sort of the new architecture. What does a Mac look like? What does a modern Mac look like? The iMac Pro and now these new MacBook Pros are the first models to look like what Apple's conception of what a modern Mac looks like until like they get around to actually making our Macs or whatever. Um, and it looks very different that if you go down the line to like, look, what is the, what does the Mac mini look like? Speaking of an old computer, it looks very different <laughs> internally in terms of how the machine boots and how it operates while it's running than these new ones. do. Right. So all of that said, this is a major update in performance 
and in some of that architecture stuff. But my tweet about this, which a lot of people were very mad about, um, I, be, I, I said when I first saw all the specs and I first saw the press release, I said, quote, this is a very minor update. And the only thing I regret about that is the word very. It's not a very minor update. But I think it's still overall a minor update. And the reason I say that, you know, obviously, as I said, like performance-wise, it's a it's a major update. I don't know anything about the GPU, so I can't talk about that, but it's probably faster. Um, the CPU and RAM and SSD all got major updates. The keyboard, I, I didn't know when I wrote that tweet whether it was actually fixed or not, because all they said was quieter. If the keyboard is actually fixed from the from the reliability problems, that is pretty major too. But the reason I still think this is a minor update. I call it a spec bump because it really, you know, it's a big spec bump, but it is still a spec bump because there are some major factors of this laptop line that made it so polarizing to begin with that are still the same. The keyboard is still a controversial low travel keyboard that a lot of people don't like the feel of. The touch bar is still really polarizing. If I'm being kind, a lot of people want to be able to order these computers without the touch bar, you still can't do that. I think revolutionary is the word you're looking for. According sure. to that press release, revolutionary touch bar and touch ID. It says right here. If you just keep saying it, maybe it'll make it true. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so the port situation is identical. You still have, you know, well, the escape hasn't, hasn't been updated yet. So maybe the next escape will have four. I got, I hope, but, um, but you know, it, you still only have the four USB-C ports and the headphone jack and that's it. So, and the headphone jack's still on the wrong side, and you still don't have MagSafe, or you still don't have a dedicated port just for power so that you can use all four of your ports for useful things. Um, you still don't have any other legacy ports or SD cards or anything like that. And, and, and whether, whether or not you think those things are important or not, the fact is all that stuff is unchanged, basically. So when judging how significant of an update this is, whether it is a, you know, quote, major update or a spec bump, which is considered a fairly minor update, this changed almost nothing about the computer if you didn't like what, what what it was before the pricing is all the same it's still very expensive for what you're getting and the upgrades drive it even more up and up and up and some of that's justified but most of it isn't so it's still you know expensive the touch bar is still forced upon you for all these high-end configurations the uh port situation is the same the keyboard is basically the same feeling if you didn't like the feeling of it it's not a major update because for all those reasons why people didn't like it before, the only one of those that is definitively fixed is if you didn't like it before because it couldn't go to 32 gigs of RAM or 4 terabytes of SSD. That's the only thing that was definitively fixed. The keyboard reliability might have been fixed. We all hope so, but we don't know that yet. So I that's why I classify this as a minor update because the major factors of what makes somebody like or not like this laptop mostly haven't changed at all. That's why I compare it to the iPhone 4S, um, because the iPhone 4S looked just like the 4, and that was the beginning of people being like, eh, it's not even a new phone, right? But the insides were way better than the 4, like significantly better. Uh, but you couldn't see it. You look at it, and it's like, well, it looks like the same iPhone. It's got the same screen, got the same buttons on the outside, same ports. Like, what's different about it? It's all on the inside. Same deal with these. If you look at them, you're like, unless you notice the true tone color shifting, you're like, this is the same laptop. What's different? And it's like... Lots of stuff inside are different. In significant ways, it's important to you. The difference between this update and the 4S update is that most people liked how the 4 and the 4S looked on the outside. There weren't 
not how it looked, but like there weren't a lot of complaints in terms of the the feature set. We weren't yet at the point where oh, yeah. we were screaming about bigger phones and stuff like that. So like the the reason these are like the same generation of laptops is they make more or less the same trade-offs in terms of the product. Number of ports, size, battery life, weight, all the things that make up a laptop. It's just that within within that house, within that the you know, that size, that number of ports, the screen, the keyboard, everything, they've done lots of stuff to the insides. But the fundamental trade-offs of how heavy should a 15-inch be? How long should the battery last? How expensive should it be? Touch bar or no touch bar? Screen resolution, which we've touched on a bunch of times with this, you know, it still being down from the old 15 inches unless you go to the scaled fuzzy. All those trade-offs are the same, which is why this is part of the same generation that came in, what, 2016, the, the MacBook yep. Pros? All right, so this is, this is still that generation. It's just that inside, they've changed a lot. So everything I was saying before about these being very significant pro update i'm talking only about the inside the outsides the same trade-offs they had always made if you like those trade-offs great now you've got a computer that you already liked only it's way more capable and more powerful and more impressive on the inside if you didn't like those trade-offs for whatever reason you're still waiting for the next generation of of apple laptops to come along so marco did you buy one yet (sighs) no but i'm probably going to which one 13 inch. Yeah, I, I've been playing with them a lot. I, I have been talking for a while now, ever since I got really the escape. Um, I've been talking about how I, I want to go with 13 inch for my next laptop. I can get used to the keyboard. I have, as I, as I mentioned, I can avoid the touch bar. Cause I, I, when I got the first one in 2016, I, I remapped uh, escape to caps lock and I've just kept all my computers that way since then. So now like I just don't hit the physical escape key anymore. Um, so I can go back to the touch bar if I want to, and it's it's not going to be a huge problem for me. Although accidental input is still a problem, uh, but oh well. I'm fine with most of the trade-offs that this makes. The one thing really that drove me nuts was the keyboard reliability problems. So if those are indeed fixed, I will have no problem going back to this. And one other thing worth mentioning, um, during this update, Apple did finally stop selling the 2015 15-inch MacBook Pro new. Uh, they were selling it up until this point and it disappeared from the store during this update so that makes me sad um but there are things about the modern line that i like and that i miss from when i had them um you know i a lot of people insist on magsafe being like a super important thing i like magsafe but i don't need magsafe and i really miss not being able to like plug in any side i want you know or whatever but that's that's nice but not massive I miss the ability to use third-party chargers and to use USB-C battery packs to give me a little bit of boost. That's nice. Like, I actually do miss that. Uh, there are more and more things in the world going USB-C, and I would like a computer that has USB-C port or two or four. Um, so that would be nice. I would like to make a whole migration of all my stuff to USB-C. I would love that because USB-C has a, is a great, has a great potential, and it could be really nice if the USB-C world ever arrives. <laughs> and we shall get to that in a second. But so like th- there are things that I want from the new models. I want the ability to drive external displays, you know, at 5K when I when I need that or if I need that. Um I like things like True Tone. That's that's I lo- I love that they now they now have that. That's great. Um and I kind of like the idea of my computer being more secure from things like webcam and microphone hacking like because that's all that's pressed by the T2 and it was also by the T1. I like the idea of the of the uh, encryption being less costly and things like that. Um, so I, I do like a lot of what the new ones offer. And so 
I do plan probably to get a 13 inch um, because now I can I can get the performance from the 15s I've been using in a 13 inch size, and that's pretty cool. I do I, I'm going to give it a little bit of time only because you know I just finished all the traveling I wanted a new laptop for this summer. <laughs> it would have been great if it came out two weeks ago, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I just completed my need for it for the next couple of months. Um, so I don't I, I right now I just don't need a laptop change for for a little while and hopefully it'll give me enough time to uh to get people's reactions on whether the keyboard's actually fixed and also i still have a, a big question mark about battery life uh that, that's still i think mostly unknown so you're going to get this 13 inch touch bar and then as soon as the 13 inch escape is updated in the fall you'll sell it and buy that that depends on what they put into the escape it, it, so the the reason why the escape hasn't been updated seems to be that i don't think intel has actually released those chips yet um, like like the whatever like the the 15 watt with GPU like whatever that combination is uh, that that is that would be used in the air and the escape. Uh, Intel apparently hasn't released those yet, so we'll see. Like I don't know if they're actually going to bring quad core to that and and what the performance difference might be um, and what Apple's going to do about it. You know th- those are all unknowns. There's all these weird rumors about what they might do with the MacBook Air or whatever, but with, they're they're all just you know rumors at this point. Um, so we'll see what happens in the fall. Um, the, my one remaining major concern about these, assuming the keyboard has been fixed and assuming the battery life is fine, both of which are significant assumptions, but um, I still am disappointed by how much the USB-C ecosystem does not let you convert all the way to it. USB-C is only great when you only need the number of ports you have on the laptop. As soon as you need more USB-C ports, you hit walls, you, you hit limitations, you, you look for products that don't exist. Because USB-C should be an easy transition to make. It should be you go to Amazon and you buy a bunch of cables that can replace all your current cables with USB-C on one end instead of USB-A. So if you have like a peripheral that has a micro USB port on it, fine, just go buy a cable for five bucks or whatever that has USB, it has micro USB on one side and USB-C on the other. And all of a sudden, you've converted that peripheral to USB-C. You can replace your lightning cables. That's a little bit more costly, but you can still do it. Fine. So theoretically, it should be easy to go all in on USB-C by just buying new cables for stuff. And cables, it, you know, you get them on Amazon. They aren't that expensive. Okay. The problem is there still don't appear to be any USB-C hubs that meaningfully multiply one USB-C port into many USB-C ports with a couple of exceptions. There, there's a couple of like those like $300 docking stations that multiply one USB-C port into like two or three plus 40 other legacy ports that you don't want. Um, and that's fine. If that, if you're, if those are your needs, that's fine. Well, can I talk a bit about those $300 boxes for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't think it's entirely fine. I have my box at work is not $300, but I don't know. It was 100 and something or maybe 200 and something. And those, like, I can never tell whether I should blame this on the fact that it's a laptop and I hate laptops and they hate me or whether it's that box. But first of all, they're not made by Apple. And second, it's really cool that I can connect one cable to my laptop, just one, and it provides power. And gives me a box that connects me to mini display port, USB-A, uh, what is it, the, I mean, there's a, my, my headphones go into that box, like all sorts, it's, when it works, 
it provides more or less the dream of, of USB-C. I connect one tiny little cable and I get all these features. I can use a bunch of legacy peripherals. Everything works, right? But pretty often, at least once a week, it doesn't doesn't crash my computer, it doesn't kernel panic, but something doesn't work. Now audio is not going through my headphones. I connected my laptop, but it didn't turn on my external monitor. It's just, you know, my external monitor is totally blank. Uh, I, I can't, uh, my Ethernet thing, it doesn't see the Ethernet adapter. That's the other thing I plugged in. It doesn't see the Ethernet adapter for whatever reason. So maybe, like, sometimes it's just a matter of unplugging it, plugging it back in. And, of course, I have these rituals to prevent it from freezing. So when I disconnect my laptop, I have to open the lid first, which maybe yeah. that's not necessary anymore, but I no, do it all it the helps. time anyway. It helps. I swear to you it helps. Yeah. So I just keep doing it, whether whether or not it's helping anymore. But, but you know, it's shown that if I do that, then it successfully negotiates the GPU. But, you know, very often I come back to my desk with my closed laptop and I plug it in and my monitor just doesn't turn on. And once every 1.5 weeks, I have to unplug the power to my little (laughs) $150 box and plug it back in. And maybe once every two weeks, I have to unplug the mini display port and plug it back in, even though I power cycled the thing. Again, it doesn't crash. It takes me a couple of extra minutes. And I don't know if it's because it's an OS problem and this is Apple's fault or it's a fault of the box or both. I like the fact that this box doesn't have drivers. I, do, I enjoy that about it. I like the fact that it, for the most part it works, but it's a little bit wonky. Uh, if if this was my computer that I paid all this money for, or if this was a desktop, I wouldn't accept these things. It's a work computer and it's a laptop, so I just kind of go along with it. But th- that dream of having a box that gives you all these other things only works if that box works as reliably, I was going to say as reliably as a USB hub, but we've talked on past shows about how USB hubs have similar reliability problems. So I think in both cases, we're looking for Apple to provide a first-party reliable solution uh, that is known to work with their operating system and their hardware in cases where third parties can get like 98% of the way there. The last 2% always just bothers me. Yeah, because like... It's one thing, you know, if, if you're going to change all the ports on the computer to be this new kind, and you're going to offer dongles or adapters or hubs that can emulate the old ports, that's a, it's a much weaker proposition if the old ports that you are, you know, creating or adapting to are less reliable than if you would have just built them into the computer in the first place. I, I don't know, you know, people who, who defend some of these, like, you know, hubs and issues with USB unreliability... I don't know what kind of work they do where they can tolerate unreliability without it being either, you know, at, at minimum, a pretty severe annoyance. But when you have, like, actual work to do on your computers, you can't have your peripherals randomly stop working or be flaky or be anything but 100% reliable. And when you have a built-in port, the vast majority of the time, built-in ports on computers are 100% reliable. And when you when you have to rely on, like, little hubs and adapters and things like that, usually you're relying on a very small number of chipsets that are actually inside these things, no matter how many brand names are on the outside. Usually it's like the, like it's like they all have the same like one or two chips in them from God knows who, uh, and they are usually you know all sharing the same mediocrity, no matter how much you pay for it or what brand names on the outside. Uh, and this is why like it's nice when Apple makes the adapters because usually they're rock solid. Apple has been in the past pretty good at that. Unfortunately, at about the same time they released the 2016 MacBook Pro with all USB-C ports, 
they also seem to back away significantly from first-party adapters and dongles and stuff. Now they outsource tons of them to Belkin and other companies, and they they seem to have exited a lot of that business. Problem is, no one else has really taken over and made reliable ones uh, in mass. Like every time we talk about this, people write in saying, "Oh, well, I have this one from insert brand here," and it's one of those ones that you see all over Amazon, where it's like a little like thing that sticks onto the side of your new MacBook or MacBook Pro with USB-C on one side, and oftentimes they're even offered in like space gray and whatever else to match the metal colors. And then on the other side, it has a couple of USB-A ports, an SD card slot, maybe a USB-C power pass-through if you're lucky, and that's usually about it. And these things cost between $20 and $60. There's a ton of those things out there. And all of them, if you look at the reviews, they all have the same problem, which is a lot of people say they work fine, a lot of people say they don't. And they all seem to just be based on the same cheapo chipsets, and they're not that great. They're, they're you know, they're flaky and, and, and unreliable, just like most USB hubs, right? So Apple bet big on the USB-C ecosystem, like three years ago with the, with the first MacBook, and then, you know, even bigger with the, uh, with the 2016 MacBook Pro revision. And the ecosystem isn't delivering still. It's been, and now, it's, you know, it's been two to three years, depending on how you, how you measure and the ecosystem is still not good enough. I wish Apple would just start making their own things again. That you know, and they wouldn't need to make a whole bunch of them. But like, Apple needs to make a USB C hub. That's it. Like, they need to make a USB C hub. Period. They already make their little eighty dollar thing that multiplies one USB C port into one USB C port, one USB A port, and HDMI that is pretty limited. And that's it. And it's eighty dollars. It's like they did the bare minimum to say they had an adapter, and it's almost insulting how little it does. No one seems to make an adapter that goes from one USB-C port to four USB-C ports. That's like, if you actually want USB-C to take off, you need things like that. And I know it's really hard because the USB-C port on the laptops, except for Casey's, isn't just a USB-C port. It's a Thunderbolt 3 port. And it has all these alternate modes that it can do. And it can do things like USB power delivery. So like if you multiply something, you, maybe all of those ports would need to have 100 watt com- capacity. Or we need to be Thunderbolt 3 compatible, which dramatically increases the cost and complexity. It might, might not even be possible. I don't even know. And that, you know, you can, you can say like you, you can't do it because you need all these things. But like not all of my USB peripherals need Thunderbolt. In fact, I think zero of them support it. Not all of them need 100 watts of power. Not all of them need even USB 3 speeds, let alone, you know, 3.1 and all the, all the bandwidth and everything else. And you can also say, well, you shouldn't make one that can't do all those things because then you have fragmentation of what the ports can do. But you already have that. That's already a thing. Like, you already have massive fragmentation of what a USB port and USB cable can and can't do uh, based on, you know, whether it supports Thunderbolt and, and whatever else. Ultimately, this is an ecosystem that, for these laptops to be, you know, good without a bunch of asterisks on the end of it, for a lot of people to really be able to get into them, we have to be able to transition to the USB-C ecosystem. And we still can't because there are still these these gaping holes in that you basically can't go all USB-C because you can't multiply the ports. And if no one else is doing it, maybe Apple can. I just, somebody has to do it. Like We, we need this ecosystem to mature. And it just isn't happening. 
And to be clear, as we've discussed many times, another way to address this problem is to put more ports on the actual machines, which we've gone through ad nauseum, but it's not going to happen in this generation. But in the next generation, they could put more ports. It's not like there's not room on the side of these computers. You could put ones that are just plain USB-C, like Casey's thing on the MacBook One. You could uh, Maybe you can't add more Thunderbolt 3 ones because of uh, the number of uh, PCI Express lanes. Uh, or maybe you could on the one that has just two ports on the side. I don't know. But anyway, there's room on the side to add essentially plain old USB ports. And then you don't have to worry about uh, hubs in the same way that it is more convenient technologically speaking, if not physically speaking, to have HDMI and Ethernet on the side of your laptop because then you don't have to worry about adapters. You don't have to worry about getting just the right expensive, fancy hub that works reliably. It's built into your computer. And if it doesn't work, your whole computer is broken. But most of the time it does work. And I can tell you, having used uh, at least three different adapters to get Ethernet and HDMI and USB-A and other things out of my laptop at work, all three of them, none of them are as reliable as the built-in ports were on other laptops that I've used. You know what's 100% reliable? All the ports on my iMac Pro. I'm very happy for you. You know what else is 100% reliable? <laughs> the leather sleeve for the new MacBook Pro. <laughs> oh, God, they made one of those? Mm-hmm. $180 for a 13-inch. <laughs> oh. 180 Now, here's the thing. You know I like my pouches. I got my phone in a little pouch. It did not cost $180, yep. Yep. right? I see the utility <laughs> of a sleeve like this. So the Apple, the, we talked about the trade-offs Apple makes with their laptop products. They, they're really pushing to make them thin and light even if the the needs dictate that it could get along get away with being thicker in particular on the 15 inch model where they've added the, the four terabyte four uh gigs of ram uh, four gigs of ram uh what are they up to now 32 gigs of ram um they could have made it thicker i mean it's not, not going to do it because that's the next generation type thing but the trade-off they made is it being very thin they found somehow managed to wedge more battery in there which is great good job but they're very thin if you have a very thin laptop, one of the advantages you get with that is that you can put it in some kind of protective thing and it's still actually pretty thin and light. And if you, like me, don't like the idea of your pretty laptop getting scratched up, if you have one of these sleeves, and if it, I don't know how well it works, but assuming it slides in and out of that sleeve nicely and isn't a pain to get in there because of friction, it's great to be able to take your laptop, throw it in this sleeve, throw it into a book bag or something, and not worry that other crap in that book bag is going to scratch up your laptop. So that that's why I see the main audience for for hundred and eighty dollar other thing is somebody who wants to keep their laptop as pristine looking as my phone. It's one hundred ninety nine dollars, John, for the that's fifteen the inch. One, the fifteen inch, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I okay. guess with the most. Well, they have more leather. It's that's clearly yeah. Oh man, two hundred dollars. I mean, they're they're nice. They look nice, right? I don't know how well that leather will hold up. Maybe the brown ones will like look aged or whatever it's it's classy like i saw you reacted to this this tweet i think casey someone mentioned uh someone was all cranky about apple saying that they make uh they used to make high-end products now they make luxury products yeah uh, i like you don't entirely buy that premise but i they have in recent you know years decade or so leaned more heavily towards the clearly luxury oriented market not that the products are made for it but that like on the watch you know they have that gold one and they have the the fancy hermes uh you know leather stuff and they make lots of products that are like this you know you don't need a 200 leather sleeve for your laptop it's just a nice thing it's it's a treat for your laptop it's a nice it's a nice thing it's a luxury item right 
The laptops themselves, I don't think, are luxury items. They do not come gold-encrusted. You can't get a gold, literal gold uh, MacBook Pro. Uh, They are still very expensive, obviously. But accessories is exactly where uh, you should do luxury things like this. If someone wants a $200 sleeve for the laptop, Apple should be willing to make it and sell it for them, and they should buy it, and they should be happy because it's a nice thing to have. But I don't think they'll sell a lot of these. I should actually point out... uh we when when we went to the Apple Visitor Center, Tiff and I made a couple of impulse purchases. Uh, I bought an orange leather case for my phone because I I wanted a leather case because my phone kept sliding out of my shorts pockets in the summertime, and because mm-hmm. uh, it's so slippery by itself. Um, and I like the orange one. And Tiff have bought. You, have you ever had? But before you say what Tiff bought, have you ever had a leather case for your phone that has not been brown or black? No, this is the first time. They've, the previous ones were always black. So I'm I I I haven't had them. But my wife has had many cases and different materials and different colors. And my experience has been ones that are not brown, black, or gray look really nice because Apple's really good at making things in pretty colors, but that the color doesn't hold up. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Maybe you're cleaner than more people. Maybe your pockets are cleaner. But let's circle back in a year and see what your orange leather phone case looks like yeah we'll put it well, in the parking lot i mean i probably won't be using it in a year which is one of the reasons i decided to take that risk yes, you, you have no problem you're you're immune to aging because you sell things before <laughs> they can get dirty well and it already is getting a little bit like darker and blackened on on like the front corner like like by like by the status bar um because presumably it's like rubbing against the in- inside of my pockets and you know turning slowly the color of denim or whatever um but it does i mean i i knew this would happen because i've seen this happen to other people's like it's fine i i'm okay with that but yeah, so so I bought the my orange case because I liked it and it looked cool. Tiff bought the iPad version of this leather sleeve for her iPad. <laughs> so like we actually have some experience with this in the family. And what color uh, did she get? Uh, the pink one. And you know she she had good reasons for buying it, and it was you know part of it was like you know just kind of the impulse purchase of of being in Apple's you know new visitor center, which was awesome and everything else but part of it it was also utility and um you know because she basically she likes to keep her ipad in like a, a backpack or something while traveling uh but without you she doesn't like keeping the smart cover on it and stuff like she just takes it out and uses it by itself like you know without a case or cover on it while like you know handling it to actually use it and it also has the slot for the pencil which she always wants to have with her so like it actually works pretty well uh so you know this one you know for for the for the laptops it's a little bit less of a case for it in the sense that it doesn't add a a, a huge practical advantage uh but you know if you wanted to toss a laptop into a bag that doesn't have a dedicated laptop pocket if you can still find such a thing this would help um other than that i i, I can't really argue for it but i i agree with your point though that like if apple wants to make fancy leather stuff and charge a bunch of money for it and sell it only to people who you know like to make expensive impulse purchases for things that make them happy that's fine i don't care it, as long as they keep making computers that are good i don't care what kind of other stuff they make on the side I, I will laugh at it occasionally when it's ridiculous uh but but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna argue that they shouldn't do it how much would a leather sleeve for imac pro cost because apparently they're doing it by square inch because the 13 inch costs, you know, 180 <laughs> and the 15 inch costs 200. I guess the 5K Amac slash iMac Pro model, maybe that's a $500 sleeve. Maybe you just put it on, leave it on all the time. Like, I don't know, like a leather vest for your computer, <laughs> like a bra for your car, but for your computer. It's got that chin down there. You could cover that with leather, right? 
Yeah, or, or maybe maybe it would only go on the foot. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a little booty. Yeah, like if you if you put the rest of the iMac Pro in leather, it might have ventilation issues. But maybe you could just put the foot in leather, and then it wouldn't like slide around on your desk. Yeah. The iMac Pro boot. We are sponsored this week by RX Bar. For 25% off your first order and free shipping, visit rxbar.com slash ATP and use promo code ATP at checkout. RX Bar's core ingredients do all the talking. You've probably seen these in stores now. The label simply says a nice big text, something like three egg whites, two dates, six almonds, and no BS. And it turns out real food ingredients actually taste really good you can actually taste the flavors they tell you you can taste the chocolate you can taste the real fruit spices like sea salt or cinnamon whether you like sweet or savory chocolate or fruit flavors there is an rx bar for you and they're all gluten-free soy-free and dairy-free with no added sugar no artificial colors no artificial flavors no preservatives and no fillers They come in 11 delicious flavor varieties now. There's also recently three new ones, mango pineapple, peanut butter and berries, and chocolate hazelnut. I've tried, I think, every flavor they offer, including these new ones. And they're just great. These new ones, I'm a big fan of the mango pineapple. These are great bars, great protein bars for things like breakfast on the go, a snack at the office. You can throw it in your bag. For They're also great for bringing on planes. They also recently introduced RX Nut Butter. This is a brand new product made with the same core ingredients as RX Bar Protein Bars, made a base of nuts, egg whites, and dates, giving you 9 grams of clean protein per serving. They have nut butter in honey cinnamon peanut butter flavor, regular peanut butter, and vanilla almond butter. This is great on pretzels, fruit, or straight out of the convenient pouch while you are on the go so for 25 percent off your first order and free shipping visit rxbar.com slash atp and enter promo code atp at checkout thank you so much to rxbar for sponsoring our show once again so for ask atp this week alicia writes i recently had to replace an airpod due to a weird sound uh with issues and and that was out of warranty they charged me $70 plus tax, as promised, but the Genius Bar employee also took my old one. I wondered why, and he didn't seem to have an answer. I realize this is also the case with other replacements by Apple. Can you hazard a guess as to why? I, I would assume that they want some sort of proof. Oh, I guess if they, never mind. You said out of warranty. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I, th- I can think of a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, Apple has a reason and actually explicitly states this sometimes to, as they say, capture things hardware that they make that has a problem so yeah they'll give you a new one or sell you a new one or whatever but they also want to see what what happened with the old one what went wrong what's what was the problem with it so they can see if they have some sort of systemic hardware problem or whatever especially for hardware devices that like don't have much software on them to speak of that is user accessible like an airpod so i can imagine that they'd want your old airpod uh to see what the deal is and the second thing is uh, that Apple is uh, pretty gung-ho on recycling recycling uh, old electronics. So very often they will offer to take any, like any old iPod or iPhone or anything that you have. And I don't know why they'd make it mandatory, but uh, you know, rather than have you throw out this thing with a bunch of heavy metals into your garbage, Apple will take it and let one of its weird robots rip it apart and harvest all of the uh, goodies inside. I think of a third reason, which is that there's probably some way if they didn't take the things back to cheat the system and <laughs> right. to get free stuff somehow. And if there is a way to abuse Apple to get free stuff, people are already doing it. 
and Apple is going to lose money on it or have other problems with that, like, you know, market devaluation or uh, fraud, you know, fraud sales and things like that. Um, like you have to, th- you know, keep in mind, like Apple is a, you know, massive, well-known company that sells high priced goods all over the world and people are willing to pay top dollar for them. So any way to scam the system, any way to, to, to get free Apple stuff or, or to, or to get it for less than it's worth or whatever will be abused and is being abused <laughs> and and so and so if there's any scam to run people are doing it and apple is probably trying to find some way to clamp down on it so you know i, I haven't thought through like you know whether you can arbitrage a replacement airpod into something more profitable but rest assured that these policies are in place you know probably you know certainly the capture thing you know that's probably usually newer stuff though like when it's first released maybe the recycling angle but i think it's mostly just to prevent various abuses and scams that would be more possible if they didn't take back the old thing during a repair andrew troop writes can you suggest how to productively use a 34 inch monitor and not be a complete curmudgeon married to a set of smaller monitors i'm losing my mind my background is my jobby job has gifted me a quote developer monitor quote which is a 34 inch dell curved monitor which is which supposedly has a 3440 by 1440 resolution I've been using smaller monitors for my entire career, and I'm really struggling to figure out how to be productive with this giant canvas. The applications that I typically use for work include PyCharm, Sublime Text, Outlook, PowerPoint, Sigh, says Andrew, Word, in our work version of Skype. I tried having all the apps open at one time, with each having a dedication, dedicated portion of the monitor that was distracting. I also tried minimizing ones that are not in use, etc., etc., etc. So, John Syracuse, a king of window management, of weird window <laughs> management... <laughs> Why don't you tell us about uh, what you recommend for Andrew? First of all, I don't like curved monitors, but that's just personal preference. Uh, agreed. Uh, that's ugh. anyway. Uh, <laughs> even though I carefully uh, edited down this thing, you skipped over a couple of important sentences. One is that Andrew says, "My brain thinks that an active application window should be approximately the size of a laptop display, with the exception of terminal windows." Right, and then he says at the end uh, about minimizing applications, it seems like I'm wasting the capabilities of this big monitor. Uh, if you minimize stuff, I think Andrew understands where he's going wrong at all points, but just isn't able to break old habits. The idea that there's a certain size that an application should be, and that size is approximately the size of a laptop display, is someone who seems to be thinking in terms of a laptop display. Laptops, you know, they have small displays compared to desktops, and very often you want to see as much as you possibly can, so you end up maximizing windows, and then you just get into this mode where you think like like it's an iPad. I can see one thing at a time. It takes up my whole screen, because why wouldn't it? Because the screen is so small, and I have all sorts of... My whole workflow is, uh, you know, is around shuffling these entire screens in and out. And so you start thinking of applications as the whole screen. But not all applications and i would say most applications are not best suited to be 15 or 13 inch 16 by 9 landscape rectangles right a messages window for example if you're running messages and sending people text messages 16 by 9 full screen 13 or 15 inches not the appropriate size of your messages window if you make your messages window that big either because you're tiling or because you just think of all windows like that you're not using your space well right uh, and, and, you know, I can I can tell you how I use Windows it doesn't mean you're going to use it. But like but Andrew, Andrew recognizes that, that the, all these things that he's tried just don't seem like they're right. Like 
divvying it up like it's a big grid or keeping them all the same size although he gives an exception for terminal windows because he considers those different and adjusting again it seems wasteful 16 by 9 15 inch terminal window is too big and you've got the whole 80 column thing people are on about at various times you the breakthrough that you have to make if you're gonna make this work is to stop thinking in grids and tiles and fix things and let each application window be a size that it is natural for the content and arrange things in your space. I always use this analogy and I don't know if it's the worst analogy in the world because most people have zero experience being a painter or anything like that, but arrange your workspace on the monitor. Like you would arrange a physical workspace when doing a task, a, a task that where you have a bunch of tools and peripherals, but are doing kind of like the thing in the middle. And I always use painting because you've got your, your paints and you've got your solvent and you've got, your palette and you've got the canvas and you've got the thing that you're looking at, but it could just as easily be taking apart a clock with a bunch of tools or working on a remote control car with like parts bins and the things you're working on and a vice and a lamp and a whatever, just arrange your workspace on the screen like that. And yes, I know you're doing more than more than one thing, right? And you have to have some way to move things around. Maybe think of it as, you know, I sometimes use the analogy of pieces of paper on a desk but pieces of paper are all the same size. So it's not great. There really is no perfect analogy because the great thing about computers is the limitations and you know the constraints of the physical world are not present on the computer. You can make things appear and disappear. You can move things instantly and make things come to the front from behind in ways that you can't in the physical world. But to make an efficient use of a large amount of space, you have to, in many ways, treat, treat it as a spatial workspace. Arrange your stuff. Size your stuff. Position your stuff. Get a feel for where your things are. Don't be constrained by the mental model that you have that it's a bunch of uniform blocks or it's a big wheel that you're spinning and shuffling through things, or you're just alt tabbing in PC parlance through this series of screens. All of those patterns do not make efficient use of your space. And if you can't do that, just go back to having a small monitor and swipe your way left and right forever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then finally, Brian Sturm writes, I just got married. Congratulations. And returned from my honeymoon this past weekend. We took many photos with my iPhone, but didn't have the best service along the coast for much of the trip. I was experiencing some weird quick quirkiness with vibrations while using the phone. And Apple rep recommended that I get an iCloud backup and then do a factory reset. I did this. After the reset, the issue went away, but we realized the following day my iCloud photo library no longer include any, included any of my photos taken on the trip, aside from the ones from our first two days and our last day. I did create a shared album during the trip, and the photos during the lost period are still in the shared album, but not my regular photos library. I've reached out to Apple Support again, but they haven't been much help in getting anything recovered at this point. I'm curious if any of you or your brilliant followers have any ideas for me. I do not, other than to say this is why you always quadruplicate your backups. That's not a word. I don't care. Uh, You always do your backups many times over just to be absolutely safe, especially if you're doing a factory reset of any kind. Um, I would have definitely done not only a backup, but also image capture prior to doing that or or even just grabbing it with photos, one or the other, um, which is exactly what I did before I did my iOS 12 in-place up, update. I did a iTunes backup. Then I did an image capture backup just to be 100% safe because we had all just come back from London when I did it. What anyway, is an image capture backup in your problem? What, what, what I'm saying is grab all the photos on my phone using image capture, put them on my computer. Oh, so you're, you're talking about back on your phone. Yeah. So uh, the, the thing, the angle I thought that was interesting about this is the challenge of going on a trip, which we all recently did, where you're going to take a bunch of photos that are important to you and making sure that you really have them all 
like, I mean, say, you know, your laptop gets dumped into the ocean or someone loses your luggage or it turns out just something weird with your thing and they need to do a factory reset. Like the idea of being on the move and and taking a bunch of pictures and then getting to a point where you have to, like, do something that requires sure knowledge that you have your stuff elsewhere. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Wipe my phone. Reset it. I have all that stuff elsewhere. It's fine. <laughs> it's in the cloud. It's whatever. Um Yes, in this case, because you had that, you know, the fact that you did return from the trip and you could have done a better backup, that's probably the better way to do it. But I always find myself worrying sort of in a transition period before I return. Uh, and the strategy I use to deal with photos is whenever I go somewhere and we're taking lots of pictures, the first thing I want to do is make sure I have enough memory cards. This is not the same for taking pictures with your phone, but I have enough memory cards for my real camera that I don't need to take, don't need to delete any of the photos off my memory cards. So my first line of defense is, yeah, I take pictures and then I take them quote unquote off my camera somewhere else, but they don't actually delete them off of the memory cards. They stay on the memory cards. So memory cards are my first backup. When I come home from the vacation, I should have memory cards filled with photos that are all in theory elsewhere, but their original location on the memory cards are still there. Second thing is I always make sure if I'm on a vacation, I have some way to get my photos from those memory cards to someplace that is physically not with me. So if I lose all my luggage or drop everything that I have into a lake, photos I took yesterday will be someplace else. And for me, that because of the way I do things, that means memory card to computer, computer up to iCloud, down from iCloud, down to computer at home, up from computer at home to 17 different backup services, right? (laughs) And you can do this at the end of each day while you sleep, plug in your computer, let it i let photos push all my photos up to icloud and because i have things on at home that pull it down from icloud and push it back up to backup services i have this thing flowing right i also have my computer that i have with me on vacation set to keep all like in that option of photos either optimize storage or don't i say don't do not optimize storage keep all the originals there and ditto for the other computers in line all this is to try to make a chain so that my photos are only briefly in one place and very quickly in multiple places. And I'm sure that they're in multiple places because this big, you know, this big chain I can see that I, that I trust that the different pieces are traveling from here to there. If I really want to confirm, I can pull up Backblaze or Crash Plan or something and look to see, pick a random photo you took yesterday, confirm that it's in your cloud backup service, which means it's also in two Macs in between the, uh, that it made its way there. In that type of scenario, you don't have to be quite as paranoid about I'm wiping my iOS device because you're sure that it was only on your iOS device as the sole location for like one day max. And after that, it's been in seven different locations. So backups at home are one thing, but backups on the go, you really kind of have to sort of build like a bucket brigade and every <laughs> uh, of data and every night, make sure that bucket brigade runs. Right. Uh, and then, you know, if, if you have real cameras, keep everything on the cards as well. All right. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Mac Weldon, Eero and RX bar. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. Accidental. Oh, it was accidental. Accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. Accidental. Oh, it was accidental. Accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. So that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O. 
A R M E N T Marco Armen S I R A C U S A Syracuse. It's accidental. All right, so the three of us were just uh, overseas for uh, various length of time, uh, and All over one we got sea. To... Are there multiple seas? <laughs> I mean, does it really? We, we yes, we went over one of the many seas and overseas. We went overseas, and we got to experience the UK. And uh, Marco, you also got to experience continental Europe, and we did this because our. Dear, dear friends, uh, Mike Hurley and now Adina Hurley, uh, they got married and we were all invited. We all got to go and a lot of our friends got to go. And it was very funny getting to see um, our mutual audiences kind of realize over time what was happening. And it was it was great fun. I, I am really thankful to get to see everyone. I am really thankful I was there to, to, to see Mike and Adina get married. And I was thankful that Aaron was able to come so that she could meet a lot of the people that she had not met, which, of course, does not include you guys or your families, um, but does include people like Jason Snell, for example, or Stephen and Mary Hackett. And so there were a lot of people that Aaron got to meet that she had not met, which were which was really great. But first and foremost, I wanted to, on behalf of all three of us, congratulate the Hurleys. Uh, it was a beautiful wedding. I know we are all three of us extremely excited for them. And they are currently honeymooning. Um, so they hopefully won't hear this for a very long time. But in any case, we thought we have opinions, the three of us. Let's talk <laughs> about the UK. <laughs> and let's start by saying, let me do my conversion here. Uh, and it was an unreasonably and unseasonably hot time for the entire duration I was in the UK. And I think, John, you you and I think you were there a couple more days than me. And then, Marco, you lingered for like a day or two and then went into continental Europe for a couple of days. But the entire time that I was there, basically from the moment I got on the airplane in Dulles, and the airplane's air conditioning just wasn't quite up to snuff. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. From the moment I got on the on the airplane to the moment I got on the return airplane, I was sweaty for like five <laughs> days straight. It was 85-ish Fahrenheit, 80 to 85 Fahrenheit, which is roughly 30 degrees Celsius pretty much the entire time. And And as an American who lives in what most would call the South, 85 is not that hot. I mean, it's hot, but it's not that hot. However, the difference between the American South and the United Kingdom is that we believe in something called air conditioning, whereas the whole of the United Kingdom seemingly does not. And what I always hear when I talk about this is, oh, no, no, we only need it for like two weeks a year. But apparently the two weeks a year has been going on for like two months for the last 15, 20 years, and they just haven't admitted it <laughs> to themselves. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, I can I can report back that the two coolest places in the whole of London, or at least based on my experience, was the capsule in the London Eye, which was delightfully cool, which is probably good because otherwise it'd you know, be a greenhouse. And one Waitrose's supermarket that we happened to step in for a brief moment, which had its its AC cranked to like 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and it, it was just like something between 15 and 20 Celsius, and it was amazing. Uh, oh, and our hotel room was also, I think I set the air conditioning at 16-ish. What? Your hotel room? All right. All right. You need to stop. You need to stop talking now. <laughs> Why? Why? You didn't have well, a room in your not? hotel? Listen, listen. So- I'm somebody who is always cold, right? When I, because we have air conditioning at work and I live in America, I wear long sleeves and a fleece at work. When I fly on my plane, 
pants. You have a plane? T-shirt, long sleeves, fleece, blanket on my legs. I'm always cold in air conditioning because in America, the air conditioning is made for people who are always hot. I'm not always hot. I'm always cold. So I am all wrapped up, right? I was hot all the time. (laughs) And part of the reason is like, and it just got worse day after day after day. It really ramped up because towards the end, I had to wear like like a wool suit jacket or whatever the hell I was wearing and pants and everything. And that was really hot. But like there was no relief. All right. So I did not stay in a hotel. I did like not an Airbnb, but basically the equivalent, which was really, really nice. And I really enjoyed it, except for the fact that this place had no air conditioning. Right. So there was no escape. And I was desperate for somewhere, anywhere to have, quote unquote, American air conditioning. A gift shop, by a tourist <laughs> trap, no. A grocery store, I actually went into a Waitrose, no. Uh, the the cabs, no air conditioning. The they, trains, they wouldn't turn it on. No Why wouldn't they turn it on in the tra- in the cabs? I don't understand. Like the I Ubers. don't think it existed. I was <sighs> in a black cab. The only cab I took was a black cab, and I, as far as I could tell, there was literally no air conditioning. Well, uh, I was in like Priuses or Prii, whatever they're called in plural. Those are probably and, like Uber or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ma- Maybe those should have air conditioning. Yes, they didn't. But. They had the friggin' windows open like animals. <laughs> we we took one that was like some like one of those like Europe only brands that I don't at least like like Citroen or something, and or Peugeot or something. Yeah, something like that. And it was like we it was on our way to the wedding, and we requested because we were wearing our formal stuff. And Tiff's like, "Can you please turn the air conditioning on like as cold as it goes?" And the guy was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, sure." And he turns it on, and it's we're just getting so hot, especially like whichever side of the car was in the sun at any given moment, like like where the sun was coming in through the window, it was just. And like, and Tiff's like, can you, can you maybe, maybe make it a little colder, maybe turn, turn the fan up a little bit? And you could see on the control panel, it was set to the temperature low, like LO. So, you know, like that's like as low as the temperature can be set. And the fan was on max. And we could barely <laughs> feel like, I just think like the cars there even are under the impression that it doesn't get hot there. Like it was so, <laughs> oh, or that was unbearable. just the, or the compressor was just shot or it needed more refrigerant. But but like it's some, there's something to be said for just never having relief. So if every <laughs> night when you got back to go back to your hotel room and cool off, I think that makes a huge difference because it, as far as I was aware, like my internal body temperature just increased over the course of a week, <laughs> and it was I could not find any place like not a single place that had American air conditioning. Which by the way, I find frigid and terrible. But at a certain point, I was just like please, can I just be cold for five minutes just so I can go in the other direction? <laughs> and then it will be a blessed relief to go outside. Uh, so, yeah, it was pretty sweaty there. And, and I think the worst was we went out to Windsor uh, to do touristy things with the kids, and we were on the the, or the National Railway or whatever, not not the same as the, the tube, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like above-ground big train, and there was some kind of accident which was, they had a nice euphemism for. Basically, a train killed somebody by hitting them on the tracks. But the way this was described to us as our train was sitting there on a siding for like an hour was uh, trespasses. I think I got the pronunciation <laughs> close, right? It's not it, in train parlance. The problem is not that someone has been run over and killed. They were trespassing because you shouldn't be on the tracks. So trespassers was the problem. Anyway, uh, we were in this train packed train packed so we're standing in the aisles seats are filled people are packed into the aisles like you know shoved up against each other and i'm pretty sure there was either no air conditioning or the heat was on because it was (laughs) so hot in that train and that train was not moving like dead stop for a long long time which they apologize profusely for they're very good at apologizing on the uh the rails there but And I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Like, I couldn't, you know, there's not much less I could be wearing. And I was dying of heat. 
Yeah, I, I really mean it. I, I did get the relief in the hotel room for sure, but pretty much with the exception of then the London Eye and 15 seconds in Waitrose's, I was sweaty from Wednesday until Monday. It was ridiculous. That being said, there does there it wasn't that bad so for much. me. I mean, oh my maybe, god, it was so bad. I mean, you know, my hotel did, did have you air have conditioning? air conditioning at your hotel. Yeah, or wherever we, you stayed. Yeah, we. Yeah, Tiff called me like when it became clear about a week beforehand that it was going to be really hot from the forecast. Tiff called the hotel to just make sure, like, we really do have air conditioning, right? <laughs> so yeah, that, that was fine, um, and it wasn't that hot outside. No, like the mm. the saving grace is that it did get cooler at night mostly that was the thing that really killed us was like in the beginning like oh yeah it's hot during the day and we don't have air conditioning but we'll open all the windows and turn on a bunch of fans and at night it actually gets cool not so cool that i was cold because i was still never cold even at night but you're like oh there's a little bit of relief but by the end of the week it wasn't getting that much cooler at night and it's like oh we gotta we have to leave this country now i mean the the only time i was really hot was when i was either in cars or in the tube like that that was pretty hot otherwise it was fine oh speaking of speaking of trains though by the way I was trying to think of the uh, the comparison because I you know public transport uh, just let us get out of the way. The public transportation in London is way better than it is in Boston. It's a low bar. I'm not saying anything. Oh God, it kills New York too. Like this is one thing. Like when I go to London, this this is now my second time spending a lot, spending a good amount of time in London, and boy, does it make New York look bad <laughs> in, a, in a number of ways. Like it's so nice the way just everything just kind of works really well. And look, I'm sure London has its problems like everywhere has its problems but one of the biggest things that makes me sad for new york when i'm there is just how awesome the transit system is there how like you know apple pays it's all contactless everywhere and you just beep in and beep out wherever you go there's no stupid cards to get and recharge and everything like that there the, the mapping is great the routing is great the announcements are very clear the stations are clean everything's well signed like well, it's, it's not it's not japanese level of uh, efficiency and cleanliness not that i've ever been to japan but i've certainly seen lots of video from there so it, it kind of reminded me of boston and that it's an old city and there's big dirty tunnels filled with rats and, and pigeons and everything right but the trains are pretty nice they're more or less on schedule the signage could be a little bit clearer, but it's still pretty good. The trains come when they say they're going to be coming. When they screw up in some way, they apologize profusely with a British accent, which makes me feel better. Uh, and it's really easy to get from point A to point B, which is something that definitely cannot be said of most U.S. cities with public transportation. I can't imagine what it would be like to live in a city with public transportation. That sounds amazing. Yeah, but the, the, the thing I wanted to get at with the, the trains, though, is that in, in Boston, I commuted for a couple of years into downtown Boston and a couple of years to slightly to the left of downtown Boston, taking multiple trains and everything. Uh, air conditioning on trains in Boston, it exists. It works more than in the trains in London. But the tricky part of the air conditioning in uh, certain lines of trains in Boston is that they so they have air conditioning things somewhere on the trains as they travel around. And those units extract heat from the interior of the train and exhaust it to the exterior of the train. And if you are on like Park Street Station, when there's 17 trains in there, all of them are blowing their heat out of the inside of their trains to the outside. And you are standing on the outside of their train waiting for your train to arrive in an underground <laughs> station filled with tons and tons of other people. And I think that's the hottest I've ever been in a U.S. train station is just waiting around 
as train after train comes in blowing hot air in your face and then they have a bunch of fans because like the train stations on air conditioning they have a bunch of fans trying to cool you off but all they're doing is blowing the hot air at you so if you ever wanted to know what it's like to live inside a ter- hair dryer try park street station <laughs> in the height of summer in boston so to to move on from the heat, which I could talk about for hours, uh, one of the coolest things, have. I think Marco, yeah, fair. Marco, I think mentioned this a minute ago. One of the coolest things about London was that it is assumed that everywhere takes Apple Pay, or at least that's the way I treated things. It is just assumed everywhere takes Apple Pay, and it is extremely unusual if that's not the case. Whereas the United States is the exact opposite. It is assumed nowhere takes Apple Pay, and it's extremely unusual and wonderful when somewhere does. And that was extremely cool. I was really happy about that. Oh, so you're listing that as a benefit, like, oh, it's great, Apple Pay can be taken everywhere. But my take on it is slightly different. I was super annoyed by the <laughs> fact that many people had an Apple Pay price limit. Oh, you can use Apple Pay anywhere. You can use contactless unless you spend more than 30 pounds, more than 40 pounds. Why? Why? What's why? What happens after I spend? And and pretty much because we're on vacation, every single thing we ever bought was more than 30 pounds or more than 40 pounds. (laughs) And so we couldn't use Apple Pay. It was really annoying. I never ran into that, but I do know what you're speaking of. And that seems completely bananas to me. But I would still, if given the choice between the American setup of almost no Apple Pay, but it's effectively limitless when when we have it, or the European setup where it's everywhere, but it has a limit, I would take it being everywhere personally. Yeah. And, and for whatever it's worth, by the way, I, I used Apple Pay for as much as I possibly could, which was almost everything I bought, including a lot of like, you know, restaurant tabs and stuff that were more than 30 pounds. I never ran into that limit. I'd heard about it a lot, but I, I also never saw that limit. Um, can I just state plainly and for the record that the plugs of the United Kingdom, I am aware of how safe they are. <laughs> I understand how safe they are. I have seen the YouTube video about how safe they are. It really They're is quite impressive, dumbest. actually. It's a great design. It is. Well, also, you mentioned the safety, but when, like, the, when the person, the, I don't know, the, the whatever, the apartment wrangler, was showing us around our place, right? Like, here's here's where laundry is, here's how you work this, that, the other thing. He made a point, and I think this was, like, for lawyerly reasons, but I don't even know, to show us how the plugs work. And he's, he, to, to assure us that they're very safe, but there is, as he phrased it, lethal voltage. We do have lethal voltage in this country, so be very careful. <laughs> and if you just put them in like this, or like so, he probably said, you'll be fine. Which, if I didn't know better, would be making you think, wait a second, is he trying to tell me that they have, like, the world's most dangerous plugs and you need to tell everyone who comes here how to work <laughs> them or we're going to die? When, actually, it's the opposite. They're much safer than U.S. plugs and he didn't need to tell us anything. Well, except that you have to put the ground, or as they would say, earth pin in first. Otherwise, it yeah, won't let yeah, anything I, else it, in. But, but again, it's not going to kill us if you don't do it that way, right? Uh, well, I don't think they'll physically let you plug in unless you put the earth pin sure sure in but first. i'm saying like there's not there's no risk of death like and this whole thing right. was phrased as a safety thing of like that we do have lethal voltage in this country i'm like oh so they have some countries that have non-lethal voltage where it's just like you know one milliamp that comes over to the the wires to your house <laughs> either way i just want to make it plain i understand how safe they are i get it you do not need to link me to that youtube video however they're the dumbest hugest friggin plugs in the entire world and i hate them. <laughs> I, I was i was thinking about that when i was there like we all look at the ridiculous plugs and they're they're comical ha huh? and i thought what does like a a 12 outlet like power strip look like in the uk is it the size of an aircraft carrier do they not <laughs> even <much>. exist because <laughs> it would take up your whole room like how does that even work no, I'm pretty sure uh, Underscore's uh, Airbnb had one, and um, 
and I saw it on the floor and it was, it was massive. It was hilariously large. Uh, but yeah, and I also don't really, I don't have a problem with it, but I don't really understand why every outlet is switched. Like, I guess that's convenient, but, um, it seems weird to me. Oh, also I forget who it was, but somebody pointed out to me that, uh, apparently it is illegal to have the bathroom light switch within the bathroom which is annoying as hell, yeah. and that's a U.K. thing. But it, 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 really well, weird. if you're from New England, you're very used to the light switches being outside room, so that wasn't that bad. Although I wasn't <laughs> used to the light switches being at knee height everywhere. Apparently oh, my house is that. made by hobbits. And by the way, to save us from tons and tons of feedback, yes, we all know that the voltage is different and higher in Europe than here. So if people are saying that's the explanation for we have lethal voltage. I assure you, 110 is also lethal in, in the U.S., um, there's way, way more smoking yes. in, in London anyway. And I remember the rest of Europe this way too. God, you should have seen Paris. Way more smoke. Oh God, I don't even want to think about it. I think my lungs just clogged just thinking of it. Paris is made of cigarettes and bad traffic patterns. <laughs> there's so much smoking in London. It's unreal how much smoking there is. And, and I said this to somebody, I don't remember who it was. I think it was somebody native and they were like, what are you talking about? You can't smoke inside, blah, blah, blah. Well, you take a half step out of any doorway anywhere in London and you're just walking through a cloud of tobacco. It is unbelievable how much and remember that like uh i forget what brand it is it's altria which is like rjr reynolds or something like that they're based in richmond virginia and i i smell considerably less smoke in richmond which is the the, the headquarters of one or more tobacco companies than i do than i did in europe like there's so much more smoke in the uk it's ridiculous and oh my god it was getting it was getting frustrating and uncomfortable by the end of the trip i i, it, I did not like that yeah, that's that's one thing that like my overall impression of of London was boy, I like so much about this city. Agreed. But, completely agreed. And and they and they seem to be like 10 years or more ahead of us on many and if not most fronts. Mm-hmm. Uh but smoking is one thing where it's like wow, I think we're like 10 years ahead of them on smoking. Like well, you're 10 years ahead of them on smoking in certain places in the US. It really is regional. Yeah, but uh, but I think if you took like the national average, I, I think we'd be significantly, you know, more progressive th- than them. Although, man, let me tell you, Paris was a, a, another level. Like, and I'm you know from what I've heard from people, this you know this varies by European region and country as well. But uh, and and Paris does seem to be like the the peak of, of smoking culture. But my goodness, yeah. So uh, you know, as as you mentioned, uh, I you know I spent most of the trip in. Uh, London, but then we spent the last two days of it in Paris. Uh, I I had never seen it. Tiff had seen it only briefly, and so we went on to check it out. So we went with a couple of friends to Paris, uh, just for two days. And so you know, I we didn't see that much of it uh, because we honestly didn't have time, and it was the end of a trip. We were exhausted, uh, but I think I saw enough of it to get a decent idea of of roughly what it's like. First of all, the the experience of riding the Eurostar, you know, under the channel and and in, and from London into into uh, Paris is a cool experience. Like the the train oh, stations the on both sides, especially the one uh, the London side, uh, which is Saint Saint Pancras. Pancras. Yeah, it's like Pancreas, but almost. Anyway, um, like it's a beautiful station, and the one the one on the Paris side is is also very nice. But when you get there. <laughs> It couldn't be more of a display of the different cultures when you compare the London side of this train, which is, you know, orderly and well-managed and has this nice, big, beautiful station. And, you know, you get there, like, you know, we took a cab there and it was, you know, nicely 
you know, managed and easy to get to and everything. You come out the Paris side. I can only describe the the way you get a taxi out of that station as chaos. Like you have to meet taxis like weirdly like across the street by this bar. There is nowhere for them to stop, so they just kind of all stop everywhere. And so like the, this massive intersection in front of this train station, which I assume a lot of people come in on all the time, that's why it's there, has nowhere good for taxis to pick people up. And there's seemingly no like, you know, police like moving people along like they do in front of in front of airports in the US now, like so you can't just like sit there forever. No, there's none of that there. So like you step out of this train station and you're just plunged into the most chaotic road situation I've ever seen. And the rest of Paris doesn't seem to be that much better in that regard, in the sense that the roads are just chaos. And like I spent a lot of time in New York City. I've seen a lot of other big cities. I've been to Rome. I've never seen worse drivers and worse road layouts than Paris. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I don't know how anybody drives there or, frankly, walks there, uh, but it's really quite something to see. <laughs> it's I, Anybody whose job involves driving in Paris every day, I salute you because I could not do that. <laughs> um also noteworthy about about paris um huge amounts of motorcycles and and motorcycle like things like scooters and stuff like that massive amounts of motorcycles. it seems like everyone there drives a motorcycle and they are all over the place like everywhere that, that you could park motorcycles was a line of motorcycles uh i've never seen a place with more motorcycles and i've never seen a place with more people smoking it, it was just a ridiculous amount of smoking everywhere it, it, it was like being in pennsylvania in the 80s like it was just like a, <laughs> an, an amazing amount of smoking and like it was it was really strange like you know we had this beautiful hotel room that was a couple stories up from ground level and in this little tiny hotel like in this like beautiful like parisian street scene it was it was so picturesque and we could open our windows and you know, and just have like all get have all the air coming in, and all the sounds of the Parisian street scene, and it was wonderful. Except that there was a restaurant in the first floor of the hotel, which meant that from the hours of about four p.m. to well after we went we went to bed, there were basically people constantly smoking, <laughs> just constantly endless chain smoking under you know from people just sitting at a restaurant, like they couldn't couldn't stop themselves from endless chain smoking ridiculous amounts of cigarette smoke which we really don't like and, and so that that kind of we, we couldn't leave the windows open in at night which is unfortunate and then we also flew out of paris uh because we figured that would be efficient you know we were we wanted to see the second city so we took the train there and then we flew out of there when it was time to go home back to new york i don't know if it's just the airport we went to which was orly you know there's there's basically two major airports charles de gaulle and orly um and, oh really i i have i have not yeah I have not seen Charles de Gaulle. I don't know if it's better. Uh, then it's fine. Orly has one of the most confusing layouts I've ever seen. Like, first of all, it's the first airport I've ever seen anywhere in any country where you walk in and you don't walk into check-in desks. You walk into a shopping mall, basically. <laughs> and nice. finding the check-in desks is a challenge in itself, right? Then you get there, and they're in all these like weird little like zones, and the signs are, you know, it's not a language barrier. That like the, most of the signs were also in English, so that wasn't the problem. 
it was just hard to find stuff. It was hard to understand where anything was. It was hard to understand where you were supposed to go. And it was just the the most weirdly laid out airport I've ever seen. It was very just like lots of odd design choices and standards that seemed to be enforced everywhere else that weren't enforced there uh, and things like that. And then like getting to the gate was amazing. Like it was, you know, there's like one gate with seven different letters. Like there's like, it's like gate 31, but there's actually seven gate 31s and here's you're at 31 D or whatever. And they're all right next to each other. It's very, very strange. And then like boarding, like the sign said boarding, but they weren't boarding for forever. And, 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 you know, normally, like, I don't I don't usually indulge, like, you know, people's boring travel delay stories. But this one just suffice to say this flight was full of delays and like the and the plane was a mess and the crew was like rude and curt and everything. It was like it couldn't be more different than the London side of the strip, which like like the and it was an airline. It was, it was B.A. But like the London crew on the London plane was like. It was a, a newer, nicer plane. Everything was perfectly clean. The London crew was so much nicer, so much better of a crew, and just so much friendlier. And, and like the French, of course, were just like angry that you existed. And like, just, like I, I'm sure Paris is really good at a lot of things. Like the food was pretty good. I'll give them that. Uh, but transportation logistics are not something I would give to the French as a strength speaking of british airways i want to give a shout out to british airways again i've only flown them twice in my entire life and both times i have been impressed by their airline food not that it's impressive food but it's impressive for airline food yeah no i've we've flown ba a few times now and they're great i like them a lot i don't plan to ever fly in or out of paris again though uh that that was that was not as much nice or fun or anything positive uh but the london part was great <laughs> i will give them lots of credit for that oh and another thing about the british airways food not only is it good for airline food but there's tons of it it's a six hour flight which i frequently six and a half whatever hour flight that i frequently take to san francisco only the difference is in san francisco they give you like your all of like one bag of potato chips and then your choice of uh whatever very bad tasting 12 dollar sandwich you want to buy from them on British Airways, they just constantly kept bringing food. Here's a snack. Here's a dessert. Here's a meal. Here's a dessert. Here's a snack. Here's a drink. <laughs> I was I couldn't eat anymore. Like I, I, you are bringing me too much free food. Not free, obviously, because these tickets were expensive. But you know what I mean. Yeah, it's funny you say all that about to go back a half step, Marco. Uh, to to say all that about Paris because I have been once as a kid and once with Aaron, and most people I know love Paris. I am glad I have been to Paris. I don't really want to go back. <laughs> like, That's kind of how I feel, I feel like about I, it too. Yeah, I, I feel like I have had my Parisian experience, and I'm good, thank you. Uh, I think I've got all I need. Well, and also, like, and and I'll give them credit too. Like, I was really worried that you know I, I'd always heard very bad things about how like how incredibly you know rude Parisians in, in particular are when you are not uh, French. And, you know, even if you try to try to speak the language, like I've heard that's it's just a really bad scene, which is one of the reasons why I was afraid to go to Paris or France at all. Um, and that wasn't a problem at all. That was totally fine. You know, the, the people who we talked to from like the hotel people to taxi drivers to people in stores and restaurants, 
they all spoke English just fine to us. They didn't seem to have a problem doing it. You know, we would try, you know, we would like greet people in French as best as we could in, our, in all of our minimal broken French. And, and they would quickly identify us as Americans and just start talking to us in English and it was fine. Um, and so that was my biggest worry. Turns out not to be a problem at all. Um, but I, I really did exp- like the the smoking was a big surprise. <laughs> the the transportation logistics being hilariously comically bad was also a big surprise. The the big reason to go there I, to me was like I need to experience French food in France because like you know it's it, French food is great and and I figured it would be awesome there and it was really good. But one thing I noticed that I I I apologize to the great nation of France for what I'm about to say. Um, but this is simply the truth. Um, it was really good, but it wasn't better than French food in New York. In fact, French food has been known to be good for so long that you can get good French food in lots of places. I feel like that that actually isn't a great reason to go there anymore. Like, or to or like, you shouldn't go there just for that because you can get great French food in almost any city. I know you're only there for two days, but I would imagine that the difference is that uh, aside from like, oh, well, you didn't go to the right high end restaurant or whatever. I think the the difference was probably that the the floor is a lot higher. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I I bet the same thing with pizza and bagels in in the New York metro area, that if you live in Paris, you can basically go to whatever stores around the corner and get a good French bread. That is not true in most of the U.S. where you can't just go, oh, just go to the the thing around the corner and get a baguette and it will be good not definitely not true around the corner in the u.s is a supermarket with terrible bread right so that's kind of the 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 floor of like how bad does it get for just the the boring staples that everybody buys i bet in paris they're all pretty good it doesn't really get that bad in fact they're all probably better than the best you can get in lots of places but if you're just shopping for restaurants i can imagine well if i go to the best french restaurant in new york and i go to an okay french restaurant in paris maybe they are comparable to go back, though, to the thing that we can all share, which was the UK, um, I really love London. I grew up not too far from New York, uh, further than Marco is, but not terribly far. And I think New York is one of my favorite places in the world, but London may even be a little bit better to me. Like, I just love London so much. And yeah, the plugs are weird. Yeah, they really need to learn what air conditioning is. But by I'm driving large, on the I, wrong side of the street and trying to kill me constantly. <laughs> uh, oh, and street signs. Why Why does London not believe in street signs? Why is that not a thing? They're yes, on the I buildings. Understand. Not always. I know. Not I know. Always. Well, hey, look, I, I mean, I complain, I complain to Mike in person about this on my first visit to London about the stupid street signs in the buildings. Uh, <laughs> but I have to admit boston is worse because boston just sometimes decides not to label the street that you're driving on it labels the cross streets but you're like yeah but what road am i on like you don't need to know that at least in in (laughs) london if you can find the signs on the building three stories up they have both streets labeled that's not always true, but I take your point. Uh, but I, I now I'm complaining again, and I don't mean to, because what I'm trying to do is be complimentary. I love London. The people that I spoke to were super nice. Obviously, their accent is delightful. Um, they dealt with, this is both people I knew and people I didn't, dealt with me being a stupid American graciously. They were extremely con- accommodating. Uh, I love London. And I've been, in prior years, I've been to other areas of the UK, mostly the southern area of of the uk and i love it there i really really do yeah driving on the wrong side of the road is weird driving on the wrong side of the car is weird weirdly enough i actually met a friend of mine who is american but is but is living in wales um and he picked us up from heathrow and we went to a to a park and 
I found it more alarming to be on the wrong side of the road than I did the wrong side of the car because I was sitting shotgun. It was weird to me that I found the road issue more alarming than the car issue. Like you would think I would expect to have a steering wheel in front of me, but no, that was okay. But, um, but yeah, being on the wrong side of the road was deeply troubling to me. It's like if you've ever driven the wrong way, uh, like I'm in the wrong lane in the U.S., like briefly, if you have to like go down, you know, like it just you're right, you're driving against traffic, right? Briefly, they do it in, in movies a lot, right? You, you know, American movies, like, oh, the mm-hmm. hero is escaping in a car chase and they, they need to go into oncoming traffic. Every time I'm driving in the UK, it feels like I'm I'm in one of those chase scenes <laughs> in an oncoming traffic, and I just expect a, a fleet of cars about to be coming at me at any moment and swerve out of the way. For me, like I I felt the the side change thing as more of like like a, a huge mental burden was placed on me because like you know like a, a, as people in the world and and uh, you know as as you get older you, you develop optimizations for how you navigate, how your brain works, you know, things you look out for, things you assume. So like one of the things is, you know, you might only look one direction when you're about to cross the street and like maybe you only look the other direction like right at the last minute when you're, but like you're pretty sure you only need to look in one direction or at least the the main risk is only coming from one direction. So you form this kind of optimization in your brain. Like, you know, you you just kind of look there first and don't pay too much attention to, to the other way or whatever. And when when everything that slipped around on you like that, you have to defeat the optimization. You have to bypass it, and you have to consciously remember every single time to bypass it and to defeat that optimization and, and to to flip it around, and do the other, just look everywhere. And that to me, like it it made it like my whole feeling while I was there was constantly having this like slight baseline of stress that I was like doing something wrong or forgetting something or about to get hit by a bus because. I had to consciously over and over and over again make myself ignore these optimizations I'd built up for like how to walk in a city. And that was, I found, very challenging to to maintain. Just like it was just like a, a constant mental burden. And this is probably just because I, you know, I've hardly been there and spent very little time in places that that have, you know, right hand or left hand drive. So um it was or whatever it is, right hand drive. Anyway. Uh so that that was a big cognitive burden for me but ultimately i i agree with you casey that london is one of my favorite places like even though i've only been there twice now like i spent a good amount of time there each time and so and i've seen a lot of it and you know if if things continue to go badly enough in our country that if things ever get bad enough that i'd want to leave the country which should honestly that would have to be pretty bad because family and everything but if we ever had to leave the country uh that would be very, very high on the list for where we would go. Sorry, they don't want immigrants there anymore either. Mm. I'll also say, I mean, if I haven't angered the French enough, um, the food in London was amazing. And both times I, I've been there. I agree. The I agree. food, like, uh, you know, Eng- English food has a bad reputation because, like, you know, traditional English food wasn't very good. Uh, but that's long in the past now and and what you have in london now is possibly the best food city in the world like it is so good let's not go crazy here no be, well because <laughs> no like honestly because they a better food city than new york uh... it's they're up there they, they're neck and neck in a lot of ways um certain food types are probably better in london certain food types are probably better in new york but it the food in london is fantastic and uh and it it really like Forget everything you you think you know about British food if you haven't eaten at nice restaurants in London recently because it's 
amazing. And uh, and I would say I had just as much amazing food in London as I did in Paris. Yeah, I think uh, I actually like traditional British foods that the, the things that everyone kind of snubs their noses at. But I agree. Like I didn't go into any fancy restaurants while we were there. We didn't have any fancy meals. But I actually think that British food gets a really bad reputation, and I don't think it's deserved. I actually think it's much better. It's it's fairly simple. The traditional stuff is fairly simple, but it's simple stuff done extremely well. And who doesn't like that? Like I, I think it. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it gets a really bad reputation. So yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed our trip. It was way too short, but we were going without kids, so it was you know to be expected. And and we were very thankful we had that time just for the two of us. Um, it was great to see the two of you. It was wonderful to see Mike and Adina get married and, and then all of our friends as well. But I, I love London and I want to go back tomorrow. I don't want to pay to go back because getting there is expensive, being there is expensive. Um, but I want to go back tomorrow. So Mike, uh, Dina, why don't you uh, get married to each other again in like a year? Let's, let's just make that happen. <laughs> you know, we can just go anyway. <laughs> I know, but you need an excuse, or at least I need an excuse to justify it. So, and gosh knows that John isn't going to go on a transatlantic flight for nothing. So, I've been to London two times in two years. We need to uh, give it a rest. <laughs> <laughs>